Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to this week's Down the Pub. Mary Rose is full today. Uh, the abuse has already started uh, brilliantly. Marcus hasn't even got his coat off yet. Clive's deleting his dinner. This is going to be good. Uh, let's start with someone who is always ready and always looks fabulous. Charlie's here. You're right, Charlie. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I've been out today giving my Life of Marilyn Monroe talk to two groups of seniors who are allowed to meet, socially distanced, of course, but it was good fun. Oh, brilliant. Did they enjoy it? Yeah, I think so. I wish I could have given them a happier ending. Yeah. Uh, especially <laughs> the second time round where I'm thinking, you know, I hope it ends better this time. Oh, no, wait. So. <laughs> and you're joining us tomorrow to talk about more Hollywood history, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, we're doing real Hollywood royalty. We're going to talk about Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. So I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah, me too. Uh, Dorman is here in Dublin. Uh, he looks surprisingly chipper today. Have you been out of the house? No, that's probably why. Um, <laughs> cold and wet and miserable, but no, I'm, I'm I'm in a good mood. It won't last. Yeah, I was going to say, it's unnerving me, if I'm honest. <laughs> Clive uh, is no longer chewing his food. Uh, Holmes reckons your pizza had pheasant and caviar on it. Oh, come, come now, truffles, please. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you order from, Clive? I'm desperate to know. This wasn't a very exciting one. Deliveroo's, the app, Deliveroo app is down in our area, which has been a source of absolute unimaginable horror, as you can imagine, for N1. <laughs> Did you have to go for something hideous like Topps Pizza or Mr. Pizza, something, pizza around the corner? The pizza around the corner, yeah. Ooh. And they didn't do pheasant or even truffle, but still, it filled me up. Sad I'm time. slightly concerned if Deliveroo's down in that area, Clive, there's just going to be piles of rotting truffle up and down the high street. It's cruel. I don't know what's going to happen. It's like people will starve. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, Holmes is here. He's already on the beer. You're right, Holmes. Yeah, not too bad, thanks. I'm still sad that there's no bar snacks anymore in your house. That was cool when you had them in the background. It was very atmospheric. Well, ironically, I got rid of them because I thought it would make me thinner, but I've just got rid of them and I've got fatter. So and they may have to come back for Christmas briefly. Outstanding. Uh, John's with us from Atlanta. How's COVID land? Uh, COVID land is rocking right now. Uh, uh, I've got a daughter who's coming back from Florida, a perennial hotspot, and bringing a new puppy into the house. So I'm bracing for that. And uh, to lend some atmosphere that uh, Holmes doesn't have, 
I'm finishing my lunch, which is a bag of Cheetos. Oh, <laughs> Cheetos are amazing. I just, I, the fact that there's just no limit on how many additives and shit you can put in food in America is great. They literally turn your hands orange. Well, they, they do. And when, uh, when we have a topic of uh, most epic junk food, I think the Americans are gonna, gonna do very creditably. Oh, Dorman's face is like, I want to do that episode. <laughs> Great episode. Oh, brilliant. Uh, <laughs> you're right, Lucy. I'm all right, mate. Yeah, just been uh, reading about morale all day, which crushes your morale, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> it's this essay land. It's essay land, yeah, 100%. Brilliant. Uh, Marcus, as we say, hasn't even got his coat off yet. He's literally just run off the train through the front door and logged in to Zoom. You're right, Marcus? I'm good. I wish that was a lie. Um, yeah, I'm tweeted up this week, which is quite in line with, um, Tori Andy from last week. Um, so full, full work tweet today. Um, but no, yeah, I haven't had man. time to make Lucy's a gin and tonic yet. So <laughs> it's a bit awkward. I'm going to save her, which might not end well. Yeah. Lucy's all flushed with you in your tweed. <laughs> Can't take it. Have elbow patches. It's only a smart one, not a not a nerd one yet. Yeah. Uh, speaking of COVID land, how's Birmingham, James? Uh, it's okay. The kitchen's almost finished, thank goodness. But uh, now the range isn't coming till next week, so we're still without an oven. But oh well. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if you know, but the rest of the country, we all find it hilarious. There isn't actually any COVID in Birmingham. We've just used it as an excuse to lock you all in. <laughs> well to be fair so far it's working uh, yeah yeah it's working for the moment <laughs> wait till christmas we have kate with us in spain you're right kate yeah i'm good thanks still uh no fun after six o'clock i love the i love the spanish philosophy that covid goes uh or covid's like gets up at six o'clock and that's when you will yeah. get run and hide yeah, yeah. and also um they've definitely arranged that covid will be taking some time off between the 23rd of december and the 6th of january so that we can all celebrate christmas oh that's nice of it i'm glad those negotiations with a pandemic virus panned out for spain yeah no, it went well it went well the government have arranged it all Brilliant. I mean, Alex, you, you say that the six o'clock thing is stupid, but don't forget Spanish COVID has a siesta between like two and five. So it's actually quite lively <laughs> around there. It's up and ready to party by six o'clock, oh, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. We also have Chris with us, who's kind of coming on and off mute because he's trying to bribe his children with the Minions movie so that they go away and leave him alone. So, Chris, you are now not toxic, but your children still are for a couple of days. Is that right? There's a there's a possibility they might be toxic, but there's nothing wrong with them in any shape, way, or form, which is a good thing. But... Be honest, what's more dangerous for your children at the moment? You, after two weeks locked in with them, or the pandemic? I'm going to go with the pandemic. I've been reasonably calm with them for the moment, although there's one walking towards me with a big grin that won't go to bed. You might find things getting dangerous soon. You might find that his language is wrecked in the next hour and a half then. <laughs> Uh, we have Lockie with us. You're right, Lockie. Yeah, I'm good. We've got uh, we had some epic news last week. We're actually going to get to play a rugby game. Um, Are you socially distancing it? That would be hilarious. No, we're smashing each other. The um, the <laughs> you, you can do it when you finish smashing each other. You playing rugby? <laughs> 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 and after no. um, we. Well, you know, no scrums, no malls. Those are the rules. So we're not allowed to, you know, do those things that rugby players do when lots of us get very close together and grip many parts of each other. 
Um, so no nuzzling each other's testicles. Is it even worth turning up? Sadly not. And my, my position as second row forward is prime testicle nuzzler. So I'm, I'm <laughs> saddened. Uh, what are you going to do instead of a scrum? Um, free kick. So I'd, lo- I'd love it if you had to do something like a Morris dance. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're doing our um, Christmas jumpers uh, that day as well. So we will all be looking silly in, in one form or another. Outstanding. Uh, Beth will be here in a bit. She's running home from work right now. And Alina's judging tonight as well because Johnny is still AWOL. You're right, Alina? I'm here and I'm looking at cute pictures of dogs. Okay, you rock on uh, and we'll get started. Okay, let's start with... Let's start with a girl for once tonight. Let's start with Kate. Ooh, okay, cool. Cool. Okay, so as ever, there's a bullshitter in the room tonight. Uh, you should, even if you're the bullshitter, have a picture ready like that you can fake um, your building. Uh, I have every faith in you. Uh, but we're doing history's greatest building. Um, so, Kate, take it away. So um, I would like to tell you about a building. So great. It's still under construction. By the time it's finished, building it will have taken 10 times longer than the Great Pyramids, 123 years more than the Taj Mahal. When construction first began on La Basilica de la Sagrada Familia, it was planned to be a simple Roman Catholic church. Later, it was designated as a cathedral. And in 2010, as construction reached the halfway point, Pope Benedict declared it a basilica. When he made the plans, Anthony Gaudi knew La Sagrada Familia would not be finished in his lifetime. So he made the plans in such a way that any architect who came after him could understand the details and continue the construction. He made models so future architects would be able to base their designs on his vision. He also planned the construction in stages so that architects of different periods could add their own style to the design. It's been under construction for 138 years so far and is hoped to be structurally complete by 2026, the centenary of Gaudi's passing, with a further four to six years for final decorative additions after that. In common with Catalan and many other European Gothic cathedrals, the Sagrada Familia is is short in comparison to its width and has a great complexity of parts, which include double aisles, an ambulatory of Shevet with a Shevet of seven absolute chapels, a multitude of steeples and three portals, each widely different in structure as well as ornament. Where it is common for cathedrals in Spain to be surrounded by numerous chapels and ecclesiastical buildings, the plan of this church has an unusual feature, a covered passage or cloister which forms a rectangle enclosing the church. Gaudi dedicated 43 years to his life, of his life to the creation of this masterpiece, the last 12 of which he was exclusively devoted to it and is one of only two people buried in the crypt, the other being Josef Maria Bocobella, a bookseller who commissioned the project after being inspired by a visit to the Vatican. At the time of his death, Gaudi's masterpiece was not even a quarter finished. The only facade constructed during his lifetime was the nativity facade, made using the death masks of deceased people of Barcelona and moulds of the workers' faces. This was Gaudi's way of making the church a part of the people. In the morning, the light filters through the stained glass on the nativity facade with soft, delicate blue and green tones. Later in the day, the sun streams in through the windows on the west front, a riot of orange and red, the colours of sunset. The symphony of light and colours dreamed up by Gaudi varies throughout the day, creating a spectacular and harmonious show within the basilica. 
Gaudi proposed to establish a close relationship between heaven and earth by using height and light. The large windows necessary to achieve this meant the walls could not be load-bearing. After many years of study, he came up with the solution of tree-like columns, a system that had never been used before, where loads could be transferred down to the floor by means of the branching out of columns. There are no exact right angles to be seen inside or outside the church, and very few straight lines. La Sagrada Familia has 18 spires, 12 on the three facades representing the apostles. Closer to the middle of the church are six taller spires. The shortest of these at the very north represents the Virgin Mary, while four are dedicated to the evangelists. These are the same height and similarly designed, and they surround one tall tower in the centre, which represents Jesus. This tower will bring the height of the structure to a total of 172.5 metres, making it the tallest religious structure in Europe. For context, Westminster Abbey is 69 metres. Gaudi believed nothing man-made should be higher than God's work, so it's no coincidence that La Sagrada Familia is exactly one metre lower than the mountain in Barcelona, which is also the city's highest point. Plans call for tubular bells to be placed within the spires, driven by the force of the wind and sending the sound down into the interior of the church. Gaudi performed many studies to achieve the appropriate acoustic results inside the temple. An organ was installed in the chancel, which has 1,492 pipes to overcome the unique acoustical challenges posed by the church's architecture and size. Several additional organs will be installed. These will be playable separately or simultaneously, yielding an organ of some 8,000 pipes. The mosaic on the roof of Sagrada Familia is designed to reflect the moonlight. It turns into a kind of lighthouse to guide seamen back home, while the reflection of the roof in the sun is visible from almost the whole city. There's tons of symbolism in each part of Gaudi's structure. Aside from the religious symbols, there are the interior pillars which resemble trees, and when you look up at them, their shapes seem to change, as real trees do. There's also a tortoise and a turtle holding up the two pillars on the nativity facade, representing both the earth and the sea, while two chameleons on either side are symbolic of change. The first masses at the La Sagrada Familia were held in 1885. When construction began, in 1882, there were no computers or digital animation. Builders had to rely on paper sketches to correctly put together this enormous structure. In 1936, in the midst of the Spanish Civil War, a group of anarchists broke into the Sagrada Familia and set fire to the crypt. Though many important materials involving the construction were lost, enough were saved. During this period, the entire construction of the building was extremely slow and on occasions halted altogether. The only other time construction has been stopped was earlier this year due to COVID-19. In the beginning, construction was carried out using pulley cranes and wooden scaffolding. This was still being used as late as the middle of the 20th century. Around this time, the invention of computers and developments in machinery rapidly sped up the construction. The original construction used stone from quarries close to the site. But when these closed, Gaudi was forced to scour the globe to find stone with similar characteristics. 60 different kinds of stones from 40 different quarries around Europe, Asia, Africa and South America have been used. The stones are first taken to a workshop the size of two football pitches with a capacity to hold 9,000 cubic metres of stone or about 25,000 tonnes. The stones are subjected to rigorous compression and flexion tests to make sure they're dense and strong enough to carry the weight of the stones that would be placed above them. The issues of weight and wind resistance have prompted the builders to use stone panels with steel cables running through them that when tensioned give the whole structure the stability it requires without so much weight as to crush the structure below. 
The stone panels on the Tower of Jesus Christ started a size of just over five by just under six metres and weigh more than 24 tonnes each. This tower alone will have a total of 144 panels. There are 18 towers or spires in total. The panels used are cut with diamond wire cutting tools, can only have a maximum of three millimetres deviation in the cut. Each one is marked to indicate its specific location before they're put in place by a huge crane and positioning only allows for a maximum of one millimetres deviation. Remember, these weigh more than 24 tonnes. Construction is not supported by any government or official church sources. Private patrons funded the initial stages and more recently private donations and three million visitors every year help to support the project, which costs approximately 25 million euros annually. On the subject of the extremely long construction period, Gaudi is said to have remarked, my client is not in a hurry. Uh, is it not just a bit showy-offy, though? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, like, do we need 18 towers? Yeah, because the 12 represent the apostles, four the evangelists, one represents the Virgin Mary and one represents Jesus, and I hope I haven't missed anyone out. I love this. This is from the person who did the most epic takedown of the church last <laughs> week as well. I'm trying to redeem myself after religion bashing last week. I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd build it up this week. You know, hopefully some balance will get me into heaven. Home Looking at a picture show. of it, it, it definitely looks quite showy offy. It does, doesn't it? It's a bit like, you couldn't do that in Britain, could you? Understand. Everyone would just be like, no, it's too much. The picture that you can see on my on my Zoom profile is actually not finished. So that's the nativity facade. So those four towers n- now are have they've just gone above those four towers that you see in most of the pictures. Um, and the 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 main tower is now going above them. And there's quite a big tower to the one side, which is the, the Virgin Mary one. Um, and there's a whole nother facade to be put on as well still. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's unbelievably huge. Home, it's, it's a it's lot of effort there, isn't there? Yeah, there is, and it, and in many ways it's quite remarkable. When did when did they start building it again? Did you say, Kate? Eighteen eighty-two, 19th of March, eighteen eighty-two. And it's not going to be finished until two thousand and thirty-six. Twenty-six. Uh, the construction twenty two thousand and twenty-six, and then they they estimate another four to six years to kind of finish bits off. <laughs> Was it two? Was it was it always <laughs> going to take that long? I know you said Gary said he's not going to rush. He doesn't want to. His client doesn't want to rush it. But was it always intended to take that long? I believe it was intended to take at least that long. Yeah, if not longer, because obviously when. Gaudi planned it he couldn't foresee the the advances in technology and machinery and and so on he obviously had no idea that was going to happen so I guess he would have planned it on a time scale which would fit with the, the technology or lack of that they had I mean it's almost finished are they not just slightly milking this now because it's the long taking the long is it all done apart from like a couple of like knobs on cupboards in the kitchen no, 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 no. we do one of them it's seventy percent. It's seventy percent done. And in February, just before they stopped construction, they stopped construction in March. In February, um, they'd just gone above the height of the twelve towers, twelve spires that are on the facades. They'd just gone above the height of them um, with the with the main towers that are in the centre. 
I mean, with, with builders that work that quickly, it probably didn't help recently that they obviously had a bit of time off to go and count the uh, votes in Atlanta in the US election. <laughs> <laughs> and then the very specific bits that you mentioned, like it, there couldn't be more than a three millimetre deviation, but that was that in Gowdy's original instructions? I don't believe so, no. Um, he... He really put together, he did, he did detailed plans for the parts that were constructed in his lifetime, but then he was very much aware that he was hand, he was going to be handing it over to somebody else to do. So then it was really more of a, an artistic impression rather than an actual plan, I believe. Um, you know, so that then they could actually plan it. And then who's, who's going to own it once it's finished? Obviously um, a lot of money's changed. There's, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's the church, but I believe it belongs, I believe there's a group, like a, like an association, like the Friends of La Sagrada Familia or something like that. So, um, they will own and maintain it, I believe. Okay, thank you. Alina? Um, Kate, just, right, I'm gonna start with something positive. Um, <laughs> It's got very pretty lights on the inside. Yeah. That's my positive comment. Cool. <laughs> um, I've been to it. Oh, have you? I oh. have. <laughs> and I'm really just sorry to, I'm really sorry what I'm about to say. I fucking hate this building. It is so <laughs> ugly. It is a Gaudi building and I just, Buys Gaudi with every part of me. I cannot. I just can't stand his artwork. You don't sound that sorry. You said sorry, but <laughs> I, I, I sorry feel really not. bad saying it. But it's 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 true. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's 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 slightly pretty with the lights. I mean, yeah, I really hate it. I'm really sorry, Kate. <laughs> It's fine. I'll, I'll get my coat. <laughs> I feel so bad for knocking you back last week as well. It's alright. I know I'm not wanted. I just, I, I love that you're not. Last week you were all like, oh, I don't want to say anything bad about the church in case I go to hell. This week you're like, nah, that's shit. <laughs> it's, it's such an. Do you know what it is? I, you know, I always respect churches and things like that, but unfortunately, it's made by Gaudi, and I just, I can't hide. <laughs> was there a part of him that drew up this plan thinking mate i'll be 80 years dead by the time they figure out how to try and finish this shits and giggles he's He's cold i don't like him he's not warm none of his artwork is 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 beautiful and 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 not fluffy we don't need fluffy artwork but uh no sorry kate okay i'm over it I'm, i'm over it well at least you can start drinking properly now do you know I haven't had a drink yet? Gonna need one after that review. I do. I do. (laughs) Quite upset. I might go and have a little cry to myself. Oh well let's see if we can do any better sticking on along the same lines because someone has gone rather more traditional in the religious line, haven't you, John? Uh that's true. Um now before we talk about what the most epic uh greatest building in history is uh, that's obviously a subjective call. But yeah. to make it a little less so, I thought we could look at it from three angles. First is the building in question, an impressive feat of work, either by one or by many. 
Uh, you may remember the last time we were here, Lucky talked about how religion can be used to as something that a bunch of people can get behind to do something. Uh, and that, that plays into what I'd like to talk about. The second criteria is, is the building historically significant? Uh, there could be, uh, Donald Trump could build the tallest building in the world next year, but it might not be historically significant because the next, the following year, maybe there's a taller building. And then finally, is the building artistically or architecturally impressive? And if not one of the greatest works of art and architecture, at least does it get into the conversation? Now, using this criteria, I can't find, cannot find anything that comes close to the complex, variously called the Apostolic Palace, the Vatican Palace, or the Papal Palace in Vatican City. And I'm using that as a, uh, as a colloquial term for a complex consisting of St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel, and the Vatican Museums, which are all connected. Now, in full disclosure, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Christian Protestant. So I'm kind of an insider and outsider on the subject of the Catholic Church. But the Vatican Palace Complex is the world's greatest building, in my view, because it dominates those three categories by which a building can be judged. First, the Vatican Palace represents the collective work of millions of Catholic faithful and many of the greatest minds of the Italian Renaissance. St. Peter's Basilica was built over 120 years, from 1506 to 1626. So for y'all English, that would be from the reigns of Henry VII to Charles I. The Basilica's principal architect was Michelangelo, though he incorporated ideas from Raphael and Donato Bermonti. The church is, in square meters, the largest church in the world, just the Basilica. The Sistine Chapel, which is connected by a short hallway to the, to the Basilica, was built in 1473, and it is where the Pope is elected by the cardinals. The Vatican Museums, which are also connected to the Sistine Chapel, contain 70,000 works of bought and stolen art, including many of the most important Roman and Renaissance artworks. Those museums were visited by nearly 7 million tourists last year, making them the third busiest art museum in the world after the Louvre and the National Museum of China. Now, when you've got a church that has 1.3 billion baptized followers today, and probably over a billion predecessors, you've got a healthy budget to work with. Second, the Vatican Palace is historically significant. Billions of Catholics have looked to the members of this palace for their personal guidance for 500 years. Of course, the church dates back far long before that. But, for, but since the basilica was built, that has been the, the place that many Catholics have looked to for their guidance of personal uh, life. Matters of doctrine like the Latin mass, transubstantiation, papal infallibility, abortion, homosexuality, have uh, these issues that the church wrestles with has, have been decided in these buildings in councils like the Vatican and the Vatican II ecumenical councils. Uh, the, the basilica is also the burial place of most popes. On the diplomatic front, Affairs of kings and emperors have been affected by papal edicts and bulls issued from the Vatican Palace, such as the excommunications of Martin Luther, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and Napoleon, or the 1837 papal bull condemning slavery, 
while papal diplomats reporting to the Vatican have affected international relations for centuries. What the place's secret diplomatic archives hold, we may not know in our lifetimes. In modern times, millions of people crowd the square outside St. Peter's Basilica to hear papal announcements, participate in Easter or Christmas Mass, or take the Pope's blessing. There's a reason why during World War II, bomber pilots of the 15th Air Force were given strict orders to stay well clear of the Vatican when bombing Rome's rail yards and marshalling stations. Whether you are a follower of Catholicism or not, that is an impressive showing. Now, artistically, this is where it stands out. The Vatican Palace is, if not the most impressive place in the world, it has to be part of any educated conversation on the subject. If the building never existed, entire art history courses would have to be rewritten. In addition to its immense size, when you walk into the Basilica, you're greeted by Michelangelo's masterwork Pieta. Michelangelo also designed the artwork in the 136-meter-tall dome, but the altar, several statues, and the successor throne of St. Peter were designed by Bernini, and other bronze, marble, and gilded statues were executed by Decambio and Buenovizio, uh, the statues on the outside facade. When you walk next door to the Sistine Chapel, you see why millions of visitors pack the chapel like sardines every year and get neck strained to look at the ceiling. Michelangelo's creation is arguably one of mankind's greatest works of art, but his last judgment, as well as Pietro Perugi's delivery of the keys to St. Peter and Botticelli's Temptations of Christ are hardly small potatoes in the art world. And it's not just religious art. If you walk down the hall a bit, you'll turn and see Raphael's School of Athens, a secular tribute to mankind's reasoning, and it's another of the world's great paintings, and of course the subject of the Guns N' Roses album cover, Use Your Illusion, which I rocked out to in the 90s. Most of these artworks cannot be moved from the Vatican Palace because they're painted directly on the walls of the chapel. Finally, the Vatican Museum houses arguably the greatest collection of treasures from world history, from 2,500-year-old Greek bronzes to, to comparatively young tapestries from 1570, defeating the defeat of the Turkish, depicting the defeat of the Turkish navy at the Battle of Lepanto. While the Smithsonian Institution is a larger museum, and the Chinese National Museum logs more visitors, these two museums are much more limited in scope because they're focused on American and Chinese history, respectively. The only museums that come close to the Vatican in world importance, in, in importance to our heritage uh, throughout the world, are the British Museum and possibly the Louvre. In short, the Vatican complex would be like having Westminster Palace, Westminster Abbey, the British Museum, St. Paul's Cathedral, and Whitehall all smushed into one complex. In Russia, you would have to combine the Kremlin, the Hermitage, Sarskoye Cielo, and the Peter and Paul Cathedral to even have a poor copy. In France, you might get there if you combine Versailles, Notre Dame, and the Louvre into one building. But even these would probably be less important to world heritage. So I can't think of anything, any other building that means so much to so many people. And I'm not even Catholic. Damn good argument. Um, let's see if Alina is any more impressed by this one. 
Well, what I like about this one is that it's it's its own city at the end of the day, really, isn't it? It is, but does that mean it's not a building? It's a complex of buildings, so I kind of think this is possibly slightly cheating a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I agree. I was thinking, and John was making a very persuasive case, um, but he was talking awf- an awful lot about the stuff that's inside it, rather than, I mean, presumably with buildings, we've got to go for its external appearance, pretty much, haven't we? Well, and I'm sorry, but when you step inside the basilica, I, I, I'm a totally lapsed Catholic. I'm not interested at all. But as a display of power to step through those doors inside that building and look at the, the marble and the way it's constructed and the dome and the view if you climb the dome as well, uh, it is pretty phenomenal. I mean, I did, I've been there once, but I didn't get any further... I, I... I didn't go inside. That big column that John's put on screen and the sort of colonnade around the outside, we got as far as that. It was too hot, the queues were too big, and we only went there in the first place so we could, so my son could say he'd been to another country, basically. <laughs> yeah, you needed to step inside because I, I, how many other people have been inside it? It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Even if you're not a Catholic, you walk in there and it is a bit mind-blowing. But also, I think the actual the front of it... And I, I'm, the actual front of it, not the not the domed part. The front of it, that building is actually quite boring in terms of its architecture, isn't it? Isn't it not? <laughs> you, you can see you can see the. Um, it, it's easy to pick out St Peter's Basilica, that rather boring looking uh, rectangle to the just to the right of it is uh, the Sistine Chapel. Obviously, what's in it is uh, much more impressive. And then the wing that comes extends off to the right are the halls where the Vatican museums uh, are housed, or a large part of the collection. Uh, that green area next to it, uh, in the middle, sort of, is the papal uh, papal palace. Um, they were buildings built at different times, and you can say that it's you know if it's a, is it a complex in the Ver- the palace at Versailles, for instance, we call the palace at Versailles, even though it has different wings that are connected. So uh, it, it's certainly, it's a fair point to say, are these different uh, buildings, but they are a complex of buildings and uh, they do serve an integrated purpose. When did, John, when did it start? When was it, when did it start construction? Uh, the, well, the, there was a St. Peter's Basilica built on traditionally, it's a necropolis, traditionally the site of St. Peter's execution um, in the, I think 200s, and uh, by the late 15 or 1400s, it was beginning to fall apart. And so I think this was Pope Julius around the uh, who who just said, let's let's scrap it and start it over. And he uh, got Michelangelo and some of his peeps to uh, come up with designs. So around the 1500s, which is why it looks very Baroque. Uh, you can see Bernini's influence, for instance. I just want to throw in that I do love Michelangelo. He is, his artwork's phenomenal and his sculptures are phenomenal. So there is a plus. There is a plus, but does, I mean, that takes the whole workman stringing a job out. I mean, Holmes had his kitchen done and it was a joke, but if they'd have taken <laughs> eight years on to paint the ceiling, you would have lost your ship. <laughs> I always think, and Clive, might, Clive may have an opinion as well, I always think being a construction lawyer must be one of the easiest jobs out there, really. <laughs> You do your contracts, put them in a drawer, then no one ever looks at it again, really. Um, but until the litigation starts, those litigations go on for a long time, normally with about a dozen parties. 
construction litigation is terrifically good stuff. But also, mainly, there's so much money tied up in it. They have to get the building finished at the end of it, and that seems to override any proceedings, from what I've heard. In yeah, the there's normally a few bankruptcies on the way. In the United States, we used to have in the 20th century a big battleship construction projects that they called them four-year battleships. Every uh, fourth year during a presidential election, uh, people would be hired to work on the battleships and uh, there would be an appropriation. And then after the election was over, uh, the next year people would be laid off uh, and then they'd wait another four years to keep working. Okay. Um, the other Jordan, Emily, couldn't be with us today because she's working. Um, she has been down the pub before. Austin isn't old enough to get in a pub. That's your son. But they have nominated their best building as well. And I feel it's only fair that we let John share it with us. Emily is a uh, college student. Austin is a uh, high school senior. And they asked me to put in a pitch for their vote for the greatest building in history which they believe is the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> um, I'm going to see if I can uh, turn off screen sharing and uh, show you a couple other pictures. But uh, this pyramid situated on the banks of the Mississippi River. It is the world's 10th tallest pyramid. But what makes it far, far more grandiose than the Great Pyramid of Cheops or the tombs of Egypt's Valley of the King, is that the Memphis Pyramid is home to Bass Pro Shop's flagship megastore, where you can find all of your hunting, fishing, and local boating needs. They have fishing reels, lures, shotguns, ammunition. They have camouflage clothing as far as the eye can see, so the deer will not see you as you line up your rifle scope on them. Yeah, the statue of Winston Churchill may be larger than life, but how could it possibly compare to the towering stuffed grizzly bear sitting in the store's lobby or the natural beauty of the many shot and stuffed foxes, deer, bighorn sheep, bobcats, turkeys, ducks, and other dead animals adorning the retail space, just like the way Anubis and Osiris once guarded Hatshepsut's ancient temple. Beneath the canopies, uh, the, the pyramid's canopy live alligators, fish, Ducks swimming in a man-made cypress swamp and other creatures. And what Egyptian pyramid could ever boast its own bowling alley, an indoor archery range, indoor pistol range, collection of Elvis stage costumes, and Uncle Buck's fishbowl and grill, where spellbound visitors can partake of delicacies like fried trout, french fries, and other high-fat saturated foods. Emily and Austin confidently expect the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid to feature prominently in a future Dan Brown novel and movie, where symbology expert Tom Hanks will be pursued by a deer-toting villain, a rifle-toting, deer-rifle-toting villain through the store's beef jerky and heated socks departments. Where else, my son asks, can you find such a seamless harmony of ancient culture, mathematical precision, a swamp, fried foods, and heteronormalcy? The only place in the world is the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid in Tennessee. <laughs> it's brilliant. I can't believe it hasn't been looted with COVID already. Also, Amer Americans, they sometimes can do replicas quite good. I'm gonna hold, I can't upload it to the uh, screen, so I'm going to hold it up. But in, in LA, there's an old English pub called the King's Head. And that's, their, that's, that's how they've done the timber framing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> to be fair, it's it's more like a pub when you get inside, but from the outside, blimey. Uh, Alina, what's your verdict on the Bass Pro Shops Pyramid? 
Uh, I have a question. How much bigger is it than the Egyptian pyramids? Uh, it is not as large as the Egyptian pyramids. You, uh, I don't know if it's showing on the screen uh, here, but um, you can you can sort of see that it is basically a large shopping mall on the inside. It was used formally as a basketball arena for the Memphis Grizzlies, and uh, but but in terms of square footage, it is it is not as large as the Great Pyramid of Giza. But in its defence, I have climbed inside that pyramid in Egypt, and there is nothing in there but an empty room at the top of a sweaty tunnel. So you will not find Austin and Emily. If there'd have been French fries at the top of that, I'd have been pleased. Yeah, you would. You would not find a uh, in Egypt. I doubt you would find holiday bargains and a twenty-eight floor elevate glass elevator to take you to a lookout over a man-made swamp uh, that was made on the banks of the Mississippi River, where obviously they needed an extra swamp. Holmes, are you sold? It looks very impressive from the inside. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I love it. I can hear your tone of voice. It's exactly how I feel. <laughs> Are you saying that Emily and Austin have failed to convince you? <laughs> Me? Yes. Possibly. I mean, it's a nice, it's not bad, but is it the best building ever? That's what we're here to decide. Well, I'm sure we'll find out. Beth has now joined us. You're right, Beth? Yeah, fine. Thanks. Finally, uh, free from the chains of working. But hey-ho, I'm here now. Here now, there's no more. Well, the only old person talking in your ear now is Clive. So, and he's much more fun than the people. I did speak to someone yesterday who was born on the third of September, nineteen fourteen. So, yeah. Oh my god, one hundred six. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he At was as dead as the doorpost. You, yeah. <laughs> At what point are you just like, yeah, I've had enough now? I guess we'll find out the older we get. Uh, <laughs> we could use Clive as a benchmark. Okay, let's go to Jane. Okay, then. That was some great choices. He's prepared this time and isn't reading off of Wikipedia. Yep, no, I've got my notebook here. Uh, well, I thought I'd be choosing the oldest building out of the lot of us today, but I've just seen the picture for Dorman's choice and well played, Dorman, well played. However, I've gone for what is a global icon. It's survived multiple empires, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the Crusaders. And I have gone for the Hagia Sophia, also known as the Santa, Santa Sophia as well, built in 537 AD by the Emperor Justinian overlooking the Golden Horn Harbour. This thing has been a church, uh, sorry, a cathedral for the Greek Orthodox, the Orthodoxy. It's been a Roman Catholic cathedral and it has also been a mosque and a museum. This building has had many, many uses. Uh, and it's really just a mixture of cultures a mixture of religions it's just important to humanity overall and it's a monument that belongs to humanity it also has significance in the turkish independence movement my ex is going to kill me for this pronunciation but kemal ataturk the founder of modern turkey he was the one that decreed it become a museum it's 
it was the largest building in the world for quite some time, especially indoors. It was the largest cathedral until the the Spanish decided to one-up and do Seville Cathedral, which is also a lovely place to go. There's just many amazing parts of this uh, this cathedral, this museum, this, well, it's now a mosque again. Uh, but you've got like things like the emperor door, you've got the marble floor, you've got the Omphalion where emperors and empresses were crowned, the mosaics that exist, including the, mos- the mosaic of Christ the Pantocrator above the emperor door, you've got the mosaics of Empress Zoe and her three husbands, and the mosaic was edited each time a husband died or, well, was just got rid of, so to speak. The dome, which was revolution for its time, and it was the largest dome in existence until St. Peter's Basilica decided to try and one-up it. It was the site of many historic events, including the start of the Western Schism, with the... Ah, excuse me. I've lost my place. Yeah, I've lost my place there. Whoops. But yeah, it was the start of the Western season with the excommunications. It's survived pillaging. It survived changes. It's has interestingly Viking graffiti, which is one of the reasons I love it from the uh, Varangian Guard that survives in its upper levels. Uh, where's Zoom gone? There we go. And yeah, it's just. It's got so many legends associated with it as well, like the weeping column. If you stick your thumb in this part of the column, which is copper facing, and the thumb comes out wet, then you're basically... I'm sure they've got one of those at the Vatican, James, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, there's some amazing historical people buried there as well, including Enrico Dondalo of Venice, uh, later a much piss-taked character from certain games, <clears throat> Civilization V. Um, but yeah, this, this building as well, it looks beautiful. It's been added to, but a lot of the original survives, and it's on my travel list. It's on my travel list, and it's one I've always been fascinated by. So, yeah, the Hagia Sophia. So we're still with religion. Holmes, what do you make of that? It's a very impressive building. It, I've not been there. It is on my list as well. Um, I, to, to visit list. Um, yeah, it, it has. It was like orthodox, and then it was, it was the home for many different religions. Do you know the time periods for those, Jane? Um, it was orthodox, um, obviously the original religion from its conception until the early 13th century, due to the Crusades. Uh, oh, sorry, Clive's nodding his head. Have I got something wrong there, Clive? Oh, the Great Schism didn't happen till after that. Yeah, so no, when it was you... first built, it was part of the, it was part of the one church. The Great ah. Schism then happened, and it became Orthodox. And then the Ottomans came in and made it into a mosque. Actually, you've missed a part, Clive. The 13th century, oh. the Crusades. Okay, the it Crusades was turned into a Roman Catholic cathedral for about 60 years until it was returned to the Byzantines. Okay. And then it was a museum from 1934-35, and then 2020 it's been returned to as a mosque, much to international condemnation. But thank you for the correction. Alina, what do you make of this one? 
I like this one. It's actually, it's spectacular. It's beautiful. Uh, again, it's also on my list of places to go. And, um, quite like this idea of it constantly changing hands from one religion to another. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, just as a note, it is also t- Turkey's most popular tourist attraction for quite a few years. Uh, 3.7 million last year. And I think 3.3 the year before. So, yeah, it's popular to everyone. Okay, let's do one more and then we will go refresh our drinks. Let's go to, I want to go to Dorman because I've just seen his picture. Oh, okay. Um, Well, my picture may look like the grassy knoll, um, which honestly (laughs) might not be the worst. Is that one of the buildings from Hobbiton? It's similar. Um, It's probably (laughs) the inspiration for it. It's actually uh, (laughs) a very old John says, wear a tinky winky and dipsy. (laughs) Uh, One of them might be disabled, according to what I'm going to say now. Well, anyway, we'll get into this. Um, Greatest building. Uh, Admittedly, when I heard this, it's fairly stumped because buildings can be great architecturally or they can be great because of events that took place in them. But I think that's a bit one dimensional. Um, So my angle of attack, it's not necessarily the nicest thing to look at from the outside monumental historical events didn't take place within it but its very presence reminds us of how far we've advanced and to a certain degree how little and on the other end of the scale to be impressive a building still needs to be intact and in terms of longevity i'm pretty sure this kicks everything else that's going to be mentioned tonight into a whole different category because my selection is newgrange which is a passage tomb in the boyne valley of county meath obviously in ireland so putting a date on when it was constructed is difficult, but the best guess is around 3200 BC. So it's in and around 5,000 years old. That predates the Palace of Gnosis in Crete, the pyramids, Stonehenge. This is a very, very ancient building. Um, Kate mentioned the architects not having you know, computer technology and they're working off pen and paper. We don't even know how they, how they built this. It's part of a much larger complex of past tombs which are known known as Bruna Bruna and it was a burial ground for Neolithic Irish noblemen as far as we know. From the outside as I said it's not too impressive it's sort of a large mound uh, built on alternating layers of earth and stone. Grass grows atop it and then there's a facade of white quartz stones that covers the front area of it. It covers about uh, an acre in total. Uh, within the mound, however, is where things get interesting because there's a passage that runs for 19 meters into the middle of it. And within this, the bones of kings and nobles from the Neolithic Irish have been found. And these tell all kinds of interesting stories from well, how these people lived, how they worshipped, how they treated people. So even this year, it's still teaching us new things because scientists... I think in Trinity College, uh, sequenced genomes from the bones of people who have been found there and discovered that one of them had Down syndrome. But he has the most elaborate burial with the most sort of grave goods assigned to him. So clearly he was lauded above society because of, or maybe in spite of, his disability. So as I said, grave goods have been discovered there. So there's um, archaeological finds to Roman era jewellery later on. There's even like graffiti has been left there but this is Bronze Age graffiti being left on a Neolithic thing. So it tells this epic story of Irish history as you go through it. 
However, the most impressive aspect of Newgrange, which is just vastly superior to similar events you can see in Stonehenge, is on the winter solstice. Uh, sat above the main door is a small window, um, which is known as the roof box. And at 9 a.m. on the winter solstice each year, if it's sunny, which in Ireland is rare, but if it is, a light from the sun will pass through inside the passage tomb and illuminate it so clearly and precisely it's like a laser. 5,000 years ago, it would have entered the passage at sunrise, but due to the changing shape and orbits of the Earth and other things I don't know about, uh, it now occurs at 9 a.m. So the precision of the architecture to allow for this to take place, given the fact it was built 5,000 years ago, is probably the most impressive element of it. And I think that's why it is so impressive, because it's revealed to us quite a lot, but I think it still has more to give. Because people are now unsure whether or not it was originally built to be a tumor at all, or whether these bones that were laid in it were added later on when people came, discovered this sort of roof box side of things and thought, maybe this is a sacred place, and then it developed into a tomb, and then later on it became something else. So it's evolved, it stayed the same, and it's as mysterious now as it was back then. So that's why I think it's the greatest building anyway. Whether or not you agree is up to you. Well, we've slightly moved away from religion, haven't we? Uh, Alina, what do you make of this one? You like ancient shit. Ancient shit. Cheers for that. Um, I've got a good question. How many um, human remains were discovered? And do we know what, anything about them? Uh, we know that they were pr- probably very wealthy uh, based on the grave goods that were found alongside them. So that's what kind of leans towards maybe it was discovered later on and then used as kings as a burial thing. But as I said, there are many other tombs in this valley. So that suggests that maybe it was intended that way. And it is the fanciest of them. There's all this Nouth and Douth or two of their names if you want to Google them. But this is the most impressive. It has that white front facade. So it seems I like it. I like this burial. Well, okay then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's, 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 it's interesting. It's actually very interesting. And I, I think I'm going to have to do a bit more reading on it. <laughs> John says it's out of your wheelhouse because it's pre-1940. Well, I do, lo- I, you know, I do love my 20th century, but I also do love my, as Alex said, ancient shit. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, do we know, do you have any articles that have been written about it? Do you know any? Uh, I think if you just whack the name Newgrange into JSTOR, you'll find something. Uh, and Charlie, if you're wondering how many Teletubbies were buried there, as I say, five bodies found. So that's all four Teletubbies and the vacuum cleaner. Not Nunu. <laughs> 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 little Beth is broken. Our own little version of La La is broken. Holmes, what do you make of this one? I quite like this one, and bizarrely, I ended up watching a documentary on Disney Disney Plus of all places about this fairly recently. Um, it is quite impressive, but it's sort of it's like Maze Howe on Orkney. It does the same thing, really. But I think the I think where Maze Howe slightly exceeds it is it too has the ray of sunlight that goes down the main chamber on the winter solstice. But Maze Howe it hits hits the centre of a Celtic carving, whereas I don't think this one has that. This just has the, the beam of light. It lands somewhere particular. I'm not 100%. Um, but at the, I would counter that point by saying, when was your one built? I, I don't know. and I'm, I'm the judge, so I don't really have to answer that anyway, really. That's <laughs> the, the rules. 
on that note, right. Mistrial. <laughs> yeah, mistrial. On that note, right, we are going to go and get some more drinks. And then when we come back, we're going to go to Lucy because she's getting progressively too drunk to make her argument. So join us for that. Okay. We're back. Uh, we've had a, a massive conversation in the break about which of the Teletubbies ended up embarking on a porn career um, and then just gone massively politically incorrect and laughed at Marcus for having a cupcake shoved in his face. So it's pretty much standard fare in the Mary Rose. We're now going to go on to Lucy before she gets too pissed or dies of starvation because she's pretty hungry. Lucy, you ready? Yes, mate. Thank you. You've gone away. From, we are getting away from religion finally, aren't we? Yeah, a hundred percent. Of course, you've got your massive cathedrals to Almighty God, whatever one it is that you know you're into. Plenty of them out there. Um, but I reckon history's greatest building is actually five minutes down my road. Um, it's a Jacobean mansion built in 1634. Some debate over the builder, but it's generally ascribed to a local Sussex ironmaster called John Britton. And the Sussex Weald was the centre of England's iron industry back in the day. So Mr. Britton had a fair few pennies kicking about. Anyway, by modern standards, the House of the Magician, as it was once called by author David Maxwell, is not huge, but it is beautiful. It's built in local sandstone. Inside, the walls are adorned with huge oak beams and oak panelling throughout, and it sits in an exquisite walled garden like a cup on a saucer. It's no wonder that in 1900, when the house was up for sale, that a new visitor described it like this. We'd seen an advertisement of her, and we reached her down an enlarged rabbit hole of of a lane. At very first sight, the Committee of Ways and Means said, that's her, that's only she, make an honest woman of her quick. We entered and felt her spirit, her feng shui, to be good. We went through every room and found no shadow of ancient regrets, stifled miseries, nor any menace throughout the new end of her, which was 300 years old. The Committee of Ways and Means referenced here was Carrie and Rudyard Kipling, and the house is, of course, Bateman's. Rudyard was a famous author by this point, uh, earning around five grand a year, and Bateman's was up for sale for a steal at nine and a half thousand. But while they were a bit slow on making an offer at first, they missed out, and it was two years later in 1902, when the house finally came to market again, that they were able to purchase it and its 33 acres. For me, Bateman's is history's greatest house, not just because it was here that Kipling wrote If, or Puck of Pook's Hill, or many of his other famous works, But because without the house, many of these works may not have been inspired at all. And because of everything that Bateman's has come to symbolise. It was a huge source of inspiration to Rudyard. When the family moved, he was incredibly famous and adored the solitude afforded to them by the location just outside the small village of Burwash, which I'm slightly biased towards because it's it's my village. Um, He was heavily influenced by the Sussex countryside, the ancient woodlands, the rolling fields. And just after purchasing Bateman's, he went on a tremendous writing spree. For Kipling, the high wield represented the entirety of England's green and pleasant land, which would become ever more important when the First World War broke out and Kipling became heavily involved with the British government propaganda. Rudyard and Carrie, of course, lost their only son, John, in the war, a rabbit hole that I definitely won't be going down today. And when I visit Bateman's, um, I often think of it as symbolic of the loss that many families endured during the war. This beautiful house surrounded by a garden that Kipling worked hard to shape and improve and an estate which had grown from 32 acres to around 300 meant that nothing meant all all but nothing um, when the news of John's death reached the front door. Kipling, who counted King George V among his many friends, kept a detailed record of visitors to Bateman's. And it pretty much reads like a who's who of politicians and celebs of the time. But the highlight for me, again, in this book is um, the annotations that Kipling wrote alongside. 
you'll often, if you've ever visited Batemans, you'll see the initials FIP and PIP next to people's names. It stands for fell in the pond or pushed in the pond. And this sums up Batemans for me. It was a family home, a place of fun for the Kipling children. Photos of John and Elsie playing in the gardens now seem deeply moving. They paint a picture of this kind of lost use of, th- use of things that might have been. When Kipling died in 1936, Caroline left Batemans um, to the National Trust on her death in 1939. And Elsie, um, their only surviving child, uh, she was the only child of three to even reach the age of 20, ensured that the house was kept true to how it was when she was growing up. As such, it holds one of the largest collections of original belongings of all the National Trust properties. Thousands of pieces of furniture, books, and even Kipling's Rolls Royce remain there in place. It's a time capsule. And it really does breathe. Like when you walk into the study in the heart of the house where Kipling spent most of his time, you can always smell the Turkish cigarettes that he was so fond of. In the dining room, you can hear the echoes of the sobs of Carrie over John's empty seat. And the bedroom currently laid out with his belongings takes you somehow straight to the battlefield of Luce. Here in the house, a mansion owned and occupied by an extraordinary man tells a story that so many ordinary families across Europe could relate to in the First World War. It may not be history's greatest building to anyone else, but it's my refuge and my reminder of why so many of us work so hard to keep the history of the Great War alive. And that is my case for Batemans. I really like that. Something completely different. Uh, And you're right. I don't think that necessarily this building that we're looking for has to be a massive, grandiose, 18 towered monstrosity. It can be something smaller and more humble. Holmes, do you agree? Uh, I I do. And I like that. And I thought it's really persuasive. And obviously I'm drawn towards the, the first war elements of it. But I think we have to be slightly objective and try and judge these things as buildings really rather than what's in it or who lived in them why (laughs) basically because otherwise every building ever could be argued couldn't it yeah but what makes it great for me you know it's the spirit of a place that makes it great it's not i mean i look at you know some of these buildings that we're seeing pictures of yeah they look marvelous but they don't mean anything to me don't mean anything to a lot of people right I think that's true, and I think that could probably argued for most of the cases we've heard tonight so far as well, to be honest. I haven't heard that argument come through, though, so I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, so what we're essentially saying is we're all wasting our time with this. <laughs> exactly. Essentially. <laughs> but hey, we're amused, so it's all good. Alina? I love the personal element to this. Um, yes, Alina. <laughs> yeah, I know. You got. You got <laughs> I'm the kind of person that walks into a house and I'm like... Wow, I can feel, you know, you can feel the energy of the house. Sorry, Holmes. Holmes is going to hate me today to be to arguing with him who's going to be winning. I'm really sorry. But, you know, the way you spoke about it and I kind of felt a little bit like I was there. So the next time I'm over in the UK, I've really got to go down and see it. Yes, mate. I'll, I'll give you a little tour. And we talked as well. And I was going to go for Clouds Hill and then I didn't because you'd picked this one and I thought they were too similar. But Clouds Hill is literally uh, one to what, like, three and a half rooms there's like a spade by the door that constitutes what you need to do when you need a crap uh, which is like a bigger <laughs> hole there's a big bedroom downstairs with all p lawrence's books and a leather bedspread which is interesting and then upstairs there's a typically like there's a gramophone equivalent of a giant 80s hi-fi um and a little guest room covered in tinfoil and that's it but it means something to me i love it marcus was nodding 
Yeah, it, it backs onto the main tank um, or where the track for the Bogington Training Centre, so I know it quite well, but that's just yeah. what I really like. Tank it's down down that road where you get that brilliant, uh, the brilliant road size. Well, well, it's on the road. Belt it's in Britain, which is the red triangle with a tank in the middle, yeah. just to warn you. Danger, tanks crossing. Yeah, been there, been that idiot. But um, yeah. yeah, it's also on the road that uh, T Lawrence was sadly uh, crashed and died. Well, so. Kind of, because it's sort of diverted, hasn't it? So it's like the actual spot where he crashed, you have to go down the bank from the road now. And there's like, but yeah, essentially. It's I was just wondering how many places, because the Vatican's most famous for its cafe. I think everyone would, if you said Vatican, someone would argue cafe first are we rating this on like national trust scones or jam or- <laughs> and what i was gonna say i mean because like my husband was i said i'm gonna do batemans and he was like oh, are you gonna mention the scones so i'm glad I mean, that you brought that up yeah please do that's a winner to consider yeah. that's a bonus point for lucy there yeah and then i was thinking about sandringham and i was like but can i really argue that the cake is one of the best things <laughs> about going for a walk around Sandringham. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Cake has and the to fact that the Queen it. just lets you take your dogs up there. We took Luca, the ancient Westie, up there, Carol's dog, and like she lets you put all your dogs around the grounds and stuff. Um, it's a- pretty Alex awesome. Alex the winner. What? There was a bolt of electricity when uh, when you mentioned cake and Charlotte suddenly yeah. came to life. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I have to. Yeah, I should have argued for that one, shouldn't I? Because Alina would have let me win on that basis. But I've gone for something that isn't either of those. Uh, Holmes, no, you did yours, didn't you? I did mine. Yeah. Cool. Okay, brilliant. Let's move on to. Let's go to Chris. I'm worried about how long he's going to be in a quiet spot. He looks like he's hiding from his children in a cupboard right now. You're on mute. Well, no, you're not, but we can't hear you. Plug them in. <laughs> Turn it off and on again. Maybe Is I'll... this a symptom of COVID? You go mute. Yeah, open the, <laughs> open the cupboard door. Maybe the walls are too thick. I don't know. It's quite, it's like quite fun watching. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, trying to figure out what's wrong with the iPad. <laughs> watching a newly 40-year-old man try and figure out technology. Oh, he's sideways now. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I think if you put it upside down, it might work better. So I'm really looking forward to the Secret Santa because it's my birthday next week. And because we're in tier three, I can't do fuck all. What day is it, Marcus? It wasn't a sympathy. I just think it's quite funny. Which day is it? 15th, isn't it? Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. But your 15th How old will you be, Marcus? Is this the big 25? <laughs> You're very generous. <laughs> He's oh, like, damn it, I'm wearing a tweed coat and trying to look 40 and it's still not working. <laughs> I hope you like Tinky Winky. Stuff. I'm old on the inside. I want to claim my pension. Jack Dorman ordering Tinky Winky shit off of Amazon as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe someone should send him a painting for his birthday of the greatest person of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. Um... I want Poe to come out of a cake and then throw a cake at him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> Dorman, you've uncovered my fetish. <laughs> That's the only thing I can get off to. It only took how many months of recording? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chris is back. Chris is back. Woohoo! Right, okay. I'm now um, just trying to hope I don't lose phone reception. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so tell us, what building have you gone for? Well, I'm very ut- utilitarian with buildings. I don't really care much for them. Um, so I asked my children as to what would be the best buildings to do. And the options I got was the um, Eiffel Tower, um, which I'm not really keen on, uh, the Avengers Tower from the Marvel movies, which would be awesome, but um, (laughs) 
and the and the Tower of London. So I've gone with that because I do like a good prison and execution story. So, uh, and it's the complete opposite for all the religious buildings because this is where a lot of religious people go to die at the hands of the state. Indeed. Um, although that's not entirely true, as I will now <laughs> explain at length. Um, the, the Tower of London is um, often overlooked um, as a London landmark in a way, and it's, it's often pigeonholed as just where the crown jewels are, as a notorious prison and a place where people get executed, including famous names um, from British history, including Anne Boleyn, Lady Jane Grey, Karl Hans Lodi and Joseph Jacobs, um, all names I'm sure you'll immediately recognise. Um, it was also um, one of my great pub quiz uh, nuggets. It's one of the um, one of the royal palaces, which uh, often gets forgotten. Um, it was originally founded as part of William the Conqueror's invasion uh, to solidify his hold on London, along with the castles at uh, um, Bayonard's Castle and Montefiat Castles, both of which have long since been destroyed. And it formed part of London's defences, uh, with a tower set in the southeast corner of the Roman city walls. Though originally being under, uh, originally being made of timber and not upgraded to stone until 1078, which was a process started by the uh, famous Stan Myway, Bishop Gundolf of Rochester, uh, who was also the, and the tower was put under the stewardships of the de Mandeville family. Uh, the White Tower is the, um, was the earliest stone keep in England, so predates Dover Castle and Rochester Castle. And it was um, the first prisoner to be held there was uh, the Bishop Ranulf Lambard, who had been uh, one of the ministers of William Rufus, but was so unpopular um, when Rufus was deposed, he went into prison. He was also the first person to escape from there as he uh, got his um, jailers drunk at a party and then used rope that had been smuggled in in a wine barrel to climb out the window <laughs> and then run off to France. Um, the castle area uh, was uh, expanded under Richard I, and in the years 1189 to 90, um, over half of his castle building um, budget for the entire country was spent on the Tower of London. Uh, this might have been mainly because his chancellor was also the constable of the tower, who was also um, concerned about Prince John uh, making a play for power. And so he had the tower expanded to defend in case of civil war and then surrendered within three days because he thought he'd get more political gain if he did surrender to John. Um, it was also later um, besieged several other times, including during the Barons' Wars. Um, people saw the, the king having a palace in the, the best, biggest fortress in London, a, a problem. And Simon de Montfort or, um, ordered that um, as part of his uh, plans, plans, negotiation, that um, the king wouldn't hole up within the tower or live there anymore. And it would be better if they lived out in Windsor. However, Henry refused and uh, moved back in uh, until after the Battle of Eversham. Uh, I'm going to skip over most of the sieges because I'm sure no one really cares. Um, Edward I spent a lot of money up upgrading it. Um, the first female prisoner, uh, Margaret de Clare, was uh, put in there in 1321. Uh, she is famous for uh, defending Leeds Castle against Queen Isabella, uh, refusing her entry and then shooting at her, um, her entourage. Um, Roger, Roger Mortimer uh, was held there briefly. He escaped when his men bribed the sub-lieutenant of the tower 
They then smashed down a wall, grabbed Sir Roger, put him in a boat and set, got him to France, where he would later meet Isabella, which would then lead on to um, the, of their affair, which saw Edward II brutally murdered and he would rule the country with Isabella and until he was executed, having been held in tower again. Um, you also end up with a lot of French nobles ending up there during the War of Independence. Not War of Independence. <laughs> French nobles being held there during the Hundred Year War, even. Uh, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's very close. Of French independence <laughs> from us. Um, for over a hundred years. It, they, they were a good source of revenue. And people have this image of the tower being grim and horrible, like the Bastille. But in actual fact, for the rich um, um, nobles who were held there, it was actually quite comfortable. And later, Sir Walter Raleigh had his uh, prison cell quarters expanded so his family could come and live with them. Uh, they were also nicer than other prisons, such as Fleet, where the um, amount of illnesses and poor poverty was pretty rife and killed a lot of the inmates, but not so much in the tower. Um, the tower the tower is continually upgraded over its years. Uh, Henry VIII um, had it had quite a bit put into it. And then purely for Marcus, um, the uh, Chancellor of the Tower, the Duke of Wellington, had it expanded as well, or had it worked on. He also had the um, the, the main moat drained when all the garrisons started getting illnesses from it. And he laid the first uh, stone for Waterloo Barracks in 1845. So the moat, they turned into the first London Zoo as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I was just coming to that. They had um, lions there in 1210 to 12... Um, sorry, sorry, 1210 to 1212. Uh, leopards, a polar bear, weirdly, which they used to take out into the river to fish but they had it held on by a chain. Um, uh, an elephant, various different wildcats for quite some time. Um, also, the idea that it was where people got executed isn't entirely true, as up until 1900, only four people were act actually executed at the tower, most of them being taken up to Tower Hill and beheaded. But, you know, still splitting hairs, really. And it was only until, like, the 20th century with uh, German spies and any um, executions that would cause public outcry were held behind closed doors within the tower. Um, and I have skipped over pages of my notes, but um, it, it's worth a consideration. It's not a beautiful building as such. Um, I think it's, it is. It's, it's got a nice, it's, it's one of the nicest castles I've been to. And I th it's a definite landmark within, within the, um, the London skyline. And it wouldn't be the same without it. But I, th I think, you can keep your cut, your chapels and your and your Vaticans. I mean, everyone's got one of those. But this, the, the Tower of London, is a symbol of sort of, of Britain, of English history, and it, it has had it's dripping with it. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it's dripping with who's who with English English well British history has been there, whether as a prisoner or as a <laughs> visitor, and it's 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 something that's sort of indelible to our, our past, and it, it's changing role as a symbol of oppression to a prison, to uh, an armory. It was where they kept all the gunpowder. Um, it was one of the big question marks about how the gunpowder got out of the Tower of London into the hands of Guy Fawkes. You know, it, it, it's, it's had such an impact on all of London's history. It has. And also as well, I'd argue that the other, there's two places that Americans flock to, isn't there? And one of them is the Tower of London and one of them is Buckingham Palace. And you can't argue yeah. for Buckingham Palace as the greatest building ever built one because not even the royal family like it 
uh, and two, because the drainage is so shit, they couldn't even use it as a hospital in World War One. So how great is it, really? Um, so I think the Tower of London's a really good shout. Home, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what, I, what I struggle to understand with the Tower of London is when did when did monarchs actually stop living there? Oh, hang on. Uh, is it Edward the Third? Edward the Third. Yeah, um, they did also. It's also part of the coronation. Um, and, and for our pageantry. listeners, what would that be in years terms? Thirteen hundred. Well, I don't know. Forties. I, I don't know. Did not Henry the Sixth, Charlie, help me out? Yeah, Henry the Sixth stayed there for a few weeks. I know uh, yeah. he was in a catatonic trance, and it was for his own good. I yeah, think. they they yeah. basically kept him in there. But I know that Charles the Second spent the night before his coronation. He at, didn't um, at the tower. I read that he didn't because that, that was a tradition. You came to the tower the night before and you left from the tower to go to Westminster Abbey. But Charles yeah. II said it was so ugly that he he, went, he turned up early in the morning for the procession, but he didn't spend the night there. Um, interesting, which I, did, kettle, isn't it? which I didn't forget, which I did forget to mention, um, really was that a couple of monarchs also died there in the form of Henry VI, brutally, brutally accidentally fell down the stairs and landed on his head. And, the best, Ed, really. and Edward V and his brother, the, the princes, dis- well, this disappeared is the thing. there. Charlie's going a little bit loopy in the court <laughs> there, being the little Yorkist princess reincarnated that she is, <laughs> about Margaret Beaufort offing two royal princes. Hey, look, she had motive, she had means, she had access. So... Just so uh, as, as, a, as a Yorkist as well, I would feel I would say that the Duke of Gloucester still had a lot to gain, and even if he didn't give the order, I think someone might have done it for him <laughs> in the form of Tyrrell. Was it Tyrrell from memory? Tip, uh, what you've been watching? You've been um, reading Shakespeare's Richard the Third there? No, I, um, my lecturer <laughs> was very keen on it. Um, we did we did we did loads of work on it when we were when we were at uni about Richard the Third. Mm. I think also whether, whether the way. I think also, I've not visited for a few years, but I think the way when you visit there, it's portrayed, it's quite a bit of a muddle. Because obviously you've got the White Tower in the middle, which is the original Norman building, the Norman the Norman castle, if you like. But even the sort of the ornate turrets on the top, they're not part of that. Then then it's suddenly, then you're pushed towards the crown jewels. And then it, it's quite hard to get a co- coherent history about how it evolved, I find, yeah. when I've been there. Yeah, different monarchs had different priorities on how they expanded it. Um, the, in the Middle Ages, there was a lot more added to it. Um, and then under Edward II, he just didn't bother. And then Edward III came along and tried to make it better. And then Rich, um, through the War of the Roses, they tried to as well. Um, and I think it was in the, um, the, middle, what was it, the late 18th century where they looked at it and said, there is absolutely no way that this is defendus- defensible as a fortress whatsoever. It just they couldn't keep up with it, but it's it kind of had different budgets. They've sort of added a bit more and but changed I, I, a bit more. I, I think all that's fair enough. I, just, I don't know who runs it now, but I always find it's really hard to try and work out what happened when when you visit there. Sort of all palaces. Yeah, yeah. HRP. They do Hampton Court, Kensington, and Tower of London. But surely that speaks in its favour, doesn't it? The fact that you've got so many different layers of history on top of each other. I mean, the fact that you've got you know your archetypal schoolboy castle norman castle with the high sided walls and you've got towers which are clearly buttressed for cannon and everything in between there well apparently Absolutely. there was a glamorous palace just south of the white tower that belonged to henry the eighth and i just looked it up and apparently henry the seventh is the last to actually live there and henry the eighth modernized that shit but so there's bits that are gone as well but well, the Queen's yeah. house is now on that side, isn't it? It's on the river side. So if the Queen were to stay there, she wouldn't be in the White Tower. She'd, she'd be mm. in one of the kind of 
looks almost Victorian, actually, kind of like the yeah. brick parts of it. You wouldn't want and to there is that, there is that tower. Tower. If you need to go to the toilet, you basically crap out a hole in the wall. <laughs> there so is that, that quite to... stunning chapel in, in, in the walls as well, isn't there? I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. And it's yeah, also uh, got great ghost stories as well. It does. If I you're into that kind of thing. the Hampton Court ghost stories, just because who doesn't love Catherine Howard running up and down the corridor screaming like a... Um, it's it's quite well. expensive. There's a lot of productions that you'll watch, and they, people can't afford to hire um, the Tower of London for the filming costs, because it's Central London costs. So Chris has already mentioned Dover Castle. Most of the time, when you look at the White Tower, Dover Castle is actually what you're looking at on film and TV. <laughs> it's all Dover. I, I think I can reveal. I, I think I can reveal now that Morden Hall was a substitute for Buckingham Palace in one of the Sharknado films. <laughs> I want to know about that shitty little tumble-down castle they pass off as Windsor Castle in the Crown. I don't know what that is. It's not Rochester, is it? Is the tower a building or is it a compound? It is a compound. That is true. So oh. are we looking at the same argument as John? Well, surely the White Tower is well. The White Tower is a building. We could focus on that if we're being objective. Ignore the compound for Clive's reasons. <laughs> <laughs> it was your argument. Oh, it was your argument. Yeah, I didn't. When I know you made that point when we talked about John's, but even then, I was like, I don't know if they're going to be able to stick to the differentiation between a building and a by the end of it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, so for me, I think the history is really interesting because you've got such a wide variety and obviously you get lots of executions, so that's a big plus for me. Um, and especially like things like you get the first spies executed like in World War One, so you get to a lot of 20th century history involved in there. Um, and obviously Rudolf Hess gets locked up in there, so again, plus yeah. World War Two. Um, and, um, a couple of World War II spies, I think, were executed in there as well, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Josef, Josef Jacobs was, he was, uh, the last one executed in, uh, 1941. There we go. So you've got a plus. So you've got lots of history from me and, uh, obviously the bit of World War II as well. Hess was only there for a day, unfortunately, but yeah, he was, he's definitely on the guest list. If there is a guest list. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's not a guest list you want to be on. Let's go to Charlie, who's going to do something completely different. Yes, now for something completely different. Right, here we go. 
So I'm staying firmly in my lane this week. Um, you might recall a story that was in the news earlier this year in which they found a secret tunnel during the renovations of the Houses of Parliament in London. Whilst bashing away and doing whatever restorative works needed doing, the builders uncovered the entrance to said secret tunnel, which was supposed to have dated back to the time of King Charles II, so my interest was naturally piqued. This particular tunnel had been made for the king's convenience at the back banquet celebrating his coronation in April 1661. I did just check and he processed from the tower to um, to Westminster the night before his coronation, but he didn't stay there. But he was the last monarch to do that procession. So I did look that up, Chris. Um Presumably, the existence of this tunnel would mean that the revellers could travel conveniently from palace to parliament and vice versa, which is all good stuff. We can also be fairly certain that Britain's randiest monarch would have utilised the labyrinthine corridors of the palace at Whitehall to assist in the conveyance of lady friends to and from his private bedchamber with the minimum of fuss. These are both great contenders for history's greatest building as far as I'm concerned. But I want to tell you about a particular secret tunnel that was not for the king's convenience or for his pleasure so much as it was to save his life. Now, for this tale, we rewind to my favourite episode of history, if history can be said to have episodes. It's September 1651, and the Battle of Worcester has been lost. The young King Charles' attempt to regain his crown, using the means by which his father lost his, has been a terrible failure. Charles thought that he would have enough support from local royalists to take on Cromwell's new model army, but he just didn't. Entire regiments didn't even turn up to the battle, leaving the king fighting in the hope of reinforcements that never came. He had to run or lose his head. What follows is a brilliant chase from Worcester up and down through the Midlands towards Wales and then back, then down to get a boat. He would have he cut off his famous long black hair. He dirtied his face. He disguised himself as a servant. He hid in plain sight amongst his subjects who would either toast his health or wish for his death. He would fall asleep in an oak tree as parliamentarian troops looked for him below and bore holes in coins to give the brave families who risked their lives to save him in lieu of anything of value because he had nothing. When later Charles is described as having the common touch and being unusually at ease with his subjects, this is why. He knew them better and he owed them more than any monarch before or after. One of the first places to shelter the fugitive king was the White Lady's Priory, a 12th century Augustinian nunnery. Following the dissolution, the property had been converted into a private house and was owned by a succession of Roman Catholic families. At this time, it was one of a few properties in the area belonging to the Gifford family. Charles Gifford was one of those on the run from the battle, along with the king, uh, so was well known and he was as safe from betrayal around this area as he could have hoped. From white ladies, Charles would go on to Boscobel House with Richard Penderell and Gifford would escort Henry Wilmot, later the first Earl of Rochester and father to the notorious wit, to Moseley Old Hall. Now, this is where it gets rather clever and exciting. Gifford's ancestral home of Chillington Hall had been garrisoned by parliamentarian troops just down the road. So all of these men were in very close proximity to a beheading. Thankfully, the homes that they were staying in were homes belonging to Catholic families who were well adept at hiding people, priests. 
They would be crammed into tiny spaces for hours and days upon end, which I guess is pretty bad if you're a little priest. But if you're a sick king, it's going to lose its appeal really quickly. Thankfully for Charles and his friends, the Gifford family had considered the long-term needs of the priests hidden away in their properties on their estates and had made provisions for them. Boscobel House and Mosley Old Hall were in fact connected to White Lady's Priory by, you guessed it, a series of tunnels that ran beneath the ground running parallel with the M54, which wasn't there at the time, and met beneath the Priory. Underneath the Priory, they had built a small room containing a modest altar, allowing concealed priests to meet and pray and more practically to get the hell out of Dodge if any particularly thorough investigators came looking for them. Had they bothered to look for it, the troops would have found that they had direct access to the king through the concealed entrance, which was at Chillington Hall. I think this is wonderful enough in and of itself, but let's get real because we're talking about Charles II here. His own personal respite from cramped captivity provided him with an opportunity to meet with Henry Wilmot and the wonderfully named Captain Careless for cards and a glass of wine over plotting to escape. It's even rumoured that they entertained ladies down there. But I'm in half a mind about this because, you know, it must have been a very tiring and stressful situation they're in. But then again, we are talking about Charles II, so I wouldn't put it past him. There were rumours that he may even have heard the Catholic Mass down there and received the sacrament from a father, Huddlestone, who helped to hide him. And later on was the priest at his deathbed who allegedly converted him to the Catholic faith. Today, the Priory at White Ladies is only ruins. Mostly Old Hall and Boscobel House are both visitable and I recommend it. But the tunnels remain infuriatingly inaccessible to the general public. Generations of renovations, not all of them sympathetic, have hidden the entrances to the tunnels so much that their existence remains something of a rumour until technology provided a way to map out the network beneath the ground. I highly doubt that I'm going to be able to ever get down there and explore in my lifetime, but maybe future generations unbridled by the tyranny of health and safety will get to go and see the hidden chapel beneath White Lady's Priory and stand where Charles II maintained his sanity and maybe got his leg over in the autumn of 1651. That's pretty awesome. Alina, what do you make of that one? I've got a question. Is it haunted? Oh, it's got to be. But I mean, you know, you've got enough nuns and priests. There's, there's got to be, there's got to be some haunting going on. Okay, thank you. That's <laughs> my logic. I'm just sending an email out to the marketing department to say Charles probably got his leg over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that if you were going to do blue plaques for that, you probably have to have quite a few. I mean, Newmarket's just going to be covered in them. You know, London. Just blue, blue speckled buildings. <laughs> yes. If you, if you could do like a UV light tour of the place. Uh, oh. <laughs> like a Jason Pollock painting. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Gosh, party time. I, I, mean, I mean, it was it was very well presented. It seemed to be more about the tunnels and the hidden bits rather than the actual building. And then presumably that was when Charles II was fleeing before he came back. He he was well. He was he had come back already. He'd been in exile, and while he was in France or wherever he'd ended up on the continent at that time, the Scots, a certain branch of the Scots, said, "Come back! You can. You're our king. We're going to crown you." And they crowned him at 
scone or scone or scone one of whatever it was cream first then jam that's the important thing they crowned him and they um amassed an army for him and the plan was to march down from scotland to london and worcester was as far as they got I mean, given what others said about why he need, may have needed a plaque there, I presume that it was, wasn't a coincidence he ended up at a nunnery. <laughs> it's kind of perfect, isn't it? I mean, it was, like I say, it was a private house at the time because of, you know, the dissolution. So it hadn't been, it hadn't been a working priory since Henry VIII. So, but it He was... must have posted a furious TripAdvisor review when he got there and found that out. <laughs> Not enough novices. <laughs> One star. One star, yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. Right, okay, we're starting to move around in terms of the age of these buildings, aren't we? Which is getting interesting. Let's go to Beth. Okay, I've gone completely, completely different. Um, so obviously today's session has been all about greatest buildings in the world, greatest buildings in history. Now, as we've kind of touched upon, building can be great for any number of reasons, whether it's great events happening there, great ideas being thought up whatever reason you can think of and there's been some really classic examples given tower of london and and um the vatican some great examples and while they are some very admirable choices that have been put forward today my choice although unorthodox and completely left field must surely be the best choice i'm actually going to be cheating for this a little bit as it's not just one building it's two it's not a palace or a monumental structure there is no religious significance to these places, no ancient burials there. It's a place that I would say most of us have never been in real life. And even if we have seen it, it's most likely been through a camera or a screen or even through sound. It's a place that some of us go every week without ever actually being there in person. And it's a place where you can find animals living alongside people. If this sounds a bit confusing, I've intended for it to be. Because for me, the greatest buildings in the world are Alex and Alina's houses. Now bear with me whilst I get going, but let's think about this seriously. Without us having to be inside of our houses because of the lockdown, would Alex and Alina have come up with the fantastic idea that is History Hack? Would the fantastic subjects that they've covered over the last nine months or so have been given the platform that they have? Would Down the Pub be happening in the way that it is? And would it be one of the highlights of my week, which I can assure you it certainly is? Would I have met some absolutely amazing people who have come to mean the world to me without History Hack? And those who don't mean that much to me either. I mean you, Marcus. <laughs> and most importantly, would Marcus have had to go without a cake being smashed in his face the first time I met him in person? How about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have presented such a wide range of topics to us from their houses, that from the from the small from the confines of living rooms, wherever they do their their recordings, to the whole world, that I can't fail i fail to see how it can't be considered as one of the greatest buildings because of the simply fantastic ideas that they've had that's come out of the place in addition um to history hack not only has there been history hack but alex's house was also the location for the great war group um which has been absolutely mind-blowingly fun and successful in the five and a half months that we've been going 
Now, to some, probably all of you in this room, this may just seem like sucking up, but I genuinely believe everything I've just I've been saying. From a personal perspective, I've had so many exciting things happen to me this year that wouldn't have happened had it not been for History Hack, Down the Pub, and the Great War Group. And for me, although I've kept it short and sweet, to me, their houses are the best buildings in the world right now. Oh, I really like that. Although I'm not, I'm looking at like the fact that Bertie's turned half his food out on the floor, um, <laughs> and like the, the Great War Group postage corner in the corner with fucking envelopes and badges and the mess that this house entails right now. And I think I've been <laughs> slightly overdone. Uh, Holmes, what do you think as a neutral? I think I think that sentiments are entirely justified. I don't think for the purpose of the of this exercise that obviously it could win and that's why I fucked off the toilet to be honest when I heard what it was. <laughs> 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 so you're lucky. I'm, 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 I'm fully behind the sentiments. I'm I'm now thinking when we can all go back to the battlefields and stuff and Beth's on a coach coming back and then one of her students says, Away from the battlefields, miss, you know. If we can take away from that, what's the best house you could ever think of in history? I reckon she might give a slightly different answer. Yeah, I think she may. After she's been here in January for the next mailing run of the Great War Group magazine and had to sleep on this sofa with Bertie climbing all over her in the middle of the night, you may think slightly less of my uh, house. I'm just reading all the comments and, you know, the accusations of brown nosing a teacher's pet. Do you know what? Sod off the lot of you are. We <laughs> have to be a teacher's pet. I'm so happy. Do you know what, though? Yeah. Although I am somewhat immune to suck upery, Alina really isn't, are you? Oh, my God, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone. You can now go home. (laughs) One, you all suck. Um, All she needed to do to seal the deal was hold up a big cake and say this is on its way to Poland. And a puppy. (laughs) Marcus is having a trip out. (laughs) No, Marcus. No, it's not. Not sure if I'm scared or aroused. (laughs) Alina, I'm taking my bribe back then. Well, I want a puppy as well. If the puppy's in it, I'm <clears throat> I'm well up for that. Now, actually, to be honest, to be fair, that's actually really sweet. Thank you very much. Uh, like Alex said, I don't know how my house my house is a tip, considering I haven't been able to go shopping in five days and I've been eating out the freezer. She's um, literally been ordering takeaway for lunch every day because <laughs> I just don't have the time to go. Unfortunately, shopping, considering I'm trying to balance all of this at once. But, um. You're all invited to my new house when it gets built next year. So hopefully that will be much nicer than this dump right now. But thank you, Beth. That's very sweet. We don't know if the Pope's apartments aren't full of cat hair and (laughs) This is true. Has the Pope ordered a great war book? Great war group book yet. No, he wow. hasn't joined the Wang. Oh, uh, well, then he doesn't win, does he? <laughs> On the other hand, Alex, we're, uh, Marcus and I are trying to figure out how many people have been executed or buried under your house. Well, not enough. <laughs> Starting with the, the drug addled moron upstairs in flat 14, she can definitely go first. Um, in, in, It'd be such a shame if she decided to give History Hack a go first thing tomorrow. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> One time, she dropped her driving licence on the stairs the other day and a neighbour took it up to her. She opened the door, held her hand out, missed the driving licence and fell on the floor. She's not listening to History Hack right now. <laughs> <laughs>
So, so yeah, if, if our building managers are listening to this, uh, can I add this to the 35 other complaints from residents? And can you throw her out? Thank you very much. No. If we need to kill anyone, people, my house is being built. Ideal location. Yeah, she literally is building a house in the middle of nowhere and they'll never find the bodies. So that's all. Hopefully you're not using those Spanish builders that built that Gaudi Cathedral thing. <laughs> no, no Gaudi is going anywhere near my house. Thank you very much. Kate's face just says, fuck you all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of using the F word, let's just have a little interlude before we go on to the next one. Because we got a one star review, didn't we? Oh, God, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So, uh, of all the History Hack episodes, KVP123 appears to have tuned into one of the Down the Pubs. He says, oh dear, without doubt, the worst excuse for a podcast I have ever heard. A group of dull, in inverted commas, adolescents with seemingly no self-awareness talking utter drivel. If you find non-stop effing and blinding, again, in inverted commas, and jokes about one of the party who has suspected COVID, actually <laughs> confirmed COVID, uh, together with continuous um, 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 and well, sort of level of dialogue, an acceptable introduction, assuming that's what's intended, then listen on. Things can only get better. Lol. <laughs> I told you I told you not to record without leaving there that episode. I was just saying, look, it's been a really long week. I just needed to put that review out there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love that almost universally everyone's response was, fuck off. <laughs> and and Clive was just, I'm an adolescent, I'm an adolescent. <laughs> Barely. I, I mean, to, to be fair, we've not seen Johnny for a while, have we? Yeah. <laughs> this I just, I, I just presumed he was lying in a cheese cobra on his living room floor. To be honest, round about this time of year, singing David Bowie songs sounds good to me. Yeah, it's pretty much where he sits for most of December uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, so uh, I think I speak for us all, and we say. Fuck off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I love it. What a bobber. Oh, brilliant. It's going to be great if tomorrow morning he thinks, oh, it's probably a bit harsh, that's done. I'll give it one more go. Yeah. He could go on a poll with, what was his name, Roger? Yeah. yeah. He actually lives in the apartment above you, Alex. Yeah, no, she, that literary ability is well above this bird. Really, it is. Right, okay. Let's move on to... Ooh, where should we go next? Who have we got left? Wave your hand if you haven't been yet. Let's go to Clive. Are we going to get more Masterpiece Theatre, Clive? I'm, I'm really sorry to say that today's subject doesn't lend itself easily to silly voices other than my own. And there's not even any sex in it. But the building I've chosen is a beautiful landmark, a wondrous symbol of modernity that personifies its age and has inspired a multitude of other buildings up to the present day. In the 1920s, America took a huge step forward. The First World War, obligatory mention of the First World War to get points for the judges, the First World War cemented its position as the world's foremost economic power and its financial heart eclipsed London as the major global financial centre. New York became the world's largest city. It was a magnet to people from around the world. It was also a city built upon granite, which was remarkably lucky. Technological innovation and firm bedrock 
allowed those developing this great city to look upwards, as the builders of the Tower of Babel had done in biblical times, and upwards they went. The first tall buildings went up in the 1870s, and then in 1890, the first build, building taller than Trinity Church was erected. But that 300-foot building was nothing to, compared with what was to come. The Singer Building, 1908, MetLife Tower, 1909, Woolworth Building, 1913, and 40 Wall Street in 1929 followed, all over 600 feet. The latter three being, in their days, the tallest building in the world. In 1921, William Reynolds, a former New York State Senator and the developer of the Coney Island Amusement Park, leased land on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 42nd Street in the city's Midtown District, right by Grand Central Station. It took six years before an architect, William Van Allen, was commissioned to design the work. Van Allen had just gone through an acrimonious split with his professional partner, the appropriately named Severance, and the result was that Severance's moderating and conservative influence was no longer there to limit Reynolds's imagination. Severance designed the rather drab 40 Wall Street. Van Allen gave us something altogether more wondrous. The Chrysler Building was, for 11 months, the tallest building in the world, and the first to top a 1,000 feet, and was even taller than the Eiffel Tower. Less than a year after it was built, the Empire State Building took over the mantle and held, held it until the World Trade Center was completed in 1971. And so you might ask, why is the Chrysler Building so important, so special? The skyline of New York is both iconic and seminal. It has directed the way in which cities have developed ever since, and urbanization has been one of the most significant demographic trends in the last 90 years. As cities have grown or been developed afresh, from London to Shanghai and so many in between, the skyline and skyscrapers that create it have become the statement that a city makes about itself. New York's skyline, set against the water, is instantly recognisable and ever-changing. The jewel in the crown of that skyline is not the rather drab Empire State Building or even the symbolic statement of the New World Trade Centre, but the majesty of the Chrysler Building. Its Art Deco spire glistens in the sun and shines magnificently at night. Its interior is also spectacular in its Art Deco gorgeousness. It is a building that has influenced so many other buildings and cities, and in turn, the very way we live ever since. And unlike structures such as the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal, it's still used as it was intended, a working building in a working city, not a museum piece or a sculptural exhibition. Unlike the Colosseum in Rome or the Tower of London, it is not now a museum, it is a living, breathing building. Unlike cathedrals or their modern equivalents, football stadia, it is not a statement of faith of a few. It is a symbol of a whole city, of a whole nation, of a whole way of urban life. Oh, well done. Can I ask a question before the judges go? Yeah. Why the Chrysler building, which I, I, I love it, but why pick the Chrysler Building over the Empire State? Oh, because it's just so much more beautiful, so much more inspiring. It, you know, the Empire State Building, the Empire State Building was for the longest period of time of any building, the tallest building in the world. But it is 
rather a drab building compared with the magnificence of the Chrysler Tower. You look at them both, they're both relatively close to each other in Midtown. The Empire State's on 5th at 34th. And you can just, um, actually there's a building at 500 Fifth Avenue where you can look out onto both of them just about the same time. And the Chrysler is the one that really catches your eye. It is just spectacular. One of the things I love about it is when it was built, there were no other tall buildings around it. And yet you look at the detail at the highest points and people have the imagination to think that there would be other tall buildings around it from which people could look at that detail. It's just absolutely spectacular. It's the most beautiful building in New York and it still is. It's still the 11th tallest building in New York City as well. I think as well, what you're saying about its artistic merits is borne out by the fact that in all disaster movies, it's not the Empire State Building that gets blown up or taken out by Godzilla or whatever. It's the Chrysler Building, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is the iconic building of New York. It really is. Armageddon, yeah. Godzilla, 98, definitely gets taken out in those two. And you know, everybody who goes to New York has or ought to go up the Empire State Building and have a look around great thing about the Chrysler building is that the viewing platform has been closed for decades. It's a building to be looked at, not looked out from. Whereas from the Empire State Building, you get the glory of being able to look at the Chrysler building. That's why I like going to the top of the rock, because you could see both. Yeah, true. Although, actually, I have to say that the view from One World Trade Centre now is pretty spectacular as well, because you are right at the end of the island. Uh, Alina, what say you? It's an interesting building, very interesting building. Uh, however, it's in New York, uh, a place I detest. Um, if we took it out of New York, then I would give you some extra points. But unfortunately, it is uh, in New York. That's Sorry, no offence to Americans. There's many yeah, other I think it would make good in Stevenage. Should we put it there? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that would be much better than New York. Uh, I have my own personal issues with New York. Um, and I'm not a big fan of the Art Deco, but otherwise it's aesthetically from the outside, it's quite a pretty building. Dude, seriously, you go and fucking have a drink or something. Cheer up, mate. How can you condemn <laughs> the whole of New York? What happened? What, what happened? Did you want to show us on the dolly where he touched you? <laughs> I too much time in New York and uh, yeah, let's leave it at that. There's no such thing as too much time yeah, in New York. A little bit like Osama Bin Laden coming down the pub. Yep. <laughs> it's not exactly. I hate, I hate Alicia Keys as well. Just, just can't, cannot stand her work. Holmes, are you any more sympathetic? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm quite persuaded by this, to be honest. It is a stunning building, isn't uh, it? I, I think it fits the brief. Every every other building, possibly with the exception of Dorman's, although he tried to tried to fill it out with the stories of five bone, five five sets of bones and stuff. I think. The brief I had in mind was we would just be judging the building as it looks externally. And I think this is a, a stunning example. And, you know, I think for many years, America just led the way with sky, skyscape, skyscraper construction, especially at that time. You know, I remember growing up in the Midlands and we were quite excited when the new technical college went up and that had four stories, you know. And then the next highest building I saw after that was the Bull Ring, the Bull Ring Tower in Birmingham. Whereas... All of these are off the scale. And even compared to what we've got in London now, these buildings are much, much higher. So I, I'm I'm quite persuaded by this, I have to say. The Chrysler, the Chrysler building built 90 years ago is still taller than the Shard, which is the tallest building in Europe. And not attractive to look at. 
Mm. But well done for bringing the new world into this debate, Clive. Definitely. Because um, not even did that. Well, John kind of did that with the pyramid. But I wonder if that was slightly tongue in cheek. Uh, let's go to Lockie. Good. Okay. He well, didn't uh, know what he was going to argue for an hour and a half ago. So what have you ended up with? Well, no, and especially now that I've heard that there was a specific brief. Um, there wasn't. I'm, That's just Holmes's brief in his head. And yeah, if you, no, think, I was if you think Alina's letting the Chrysler building go past her to number one spot, I think she's going to be uh, slightly <laughs> bullish about I was that. hoping to take advantage of a very vaguely worded brief and, and approach this from a very different angle altogether. And, and actually, like John, I had a, a criteria or a, you know, a list of objectives. Mine are a little bit different to his, I have to say. I mean, where he said is an impressive feat of work. I said, is it something we all love? Does it bring joy um, to us? Uh, historically significant, certainly. Yeah, I think that's, that's got a, you know, certainly longevity. It's got to have stood the test of time. I, I also put, I think it needs to tangibly uh, affect the area that it's in in a positive way. Um, and so actually external appearance matters a little less in that regard. Also for the Wokies, I, I wanted to put something in for the 21st century values. So I, I, I kind of chucked in untainted by colonial racial or criminal negativity and no connotations with things like slavery and, and, and such like. So I, I wanted those things in there as well. So I don't have a specific building as such, but it's more of a concept and an idea of a building. And that is da -da 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 -da, the pub. Okay. Now. It's like sold. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that's his expression, but stay, stay with me, please. Um, I mean, it's basic form. What have we got? I mean, an ale house, something, some, a building that serves beer. Fine. Historically, where are we with this? I mean, in this country, um, in the year 965, King Edgar decreed that every village shall have a, an ale house. Brilliant. Great king. Um, but of course, beyond beer itself, um, if we're treating an alehouse or a pub as a vehicle for beer, then of course that goes back to, I mean, what Sumerians in 3500 BC, um, what's its significance back then? Are we talking about the foundation of civilization? We're talking about moving away from hunter-gatherer lifestyle and subsistence farming to cooperative labor around beer. I mean, brilliant. And this is, this is the foundation of world civilization that we're talking about now. So it's fairly big deal stuff and quite historically significant. Um, why is beer historically significant? Well, for years, it was the safe drink. I mean, it's not just, the, you know, the good old quote of beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, um, which is which is true anyway, um, of course. And, and that kind of reverential attitude that we had towards beer, it was quite simply safer to drink the water. I mean, you know, we didn't necessarily know the science way back when, but it's been boiled as part of the brewing process. So we've killed the bacteria in it, which makes it safer than water, especially in times of cholera outbreaks, for example. So people would be paid with beer. And so the building that delivers the beer, whatever you call it, is surely extremely important. This purveyor of a wonderful thing. Yeah, the pub is important. But to us, the pub and cultural significance uh, and community significance is way way more than that and they're, they're inspirational i mean talk about famous pub goers people like dr samuel johnson um coder of the english language with the dictionary his modus operandi would be a walk down fleet street stopping at every pub along the way 
Um, and the most you know, famous pub on Fleet Street would be the Cheshire Cheese, probably, um, which in itself is brilliant. Um, I mean, it's all in, in all the tourist guidebooks. That's fine. I go there anyway because I love it. And it's not just important to me. I mean, it talk, obligatory First World War reference, of course, coming now. Um, it was well loved by especially colonial troops coming in. So there's all the stories of Australian and Canadian uh, troops going in there and, and loving it and loving like the parrot behind the bar, that sort of stuff. Fantastic. Um, so as a morale booster for lads a long, long way from home who couldn't go home, this lifts them a little bit. That's the power that the pub has. And, and I'm not going to say that the pub won the war for, for the Allies, but we, we know the power of Canadian and Australian troops in 1918. They're, on the, they're at the tip of the spear, so valuable. And not just that, I mean, inspiration, you talk about more modern literature, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, the famous Inklings group at the, um, the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford, some of their finest literary work there, and um, of that same pub, actually, um, Charlie will like this, um, was a pay house for Charles's army um, in Oxford uh, as well at the time of the Civil War, uh, and so that, that building probably did as much as anyone to stem the, stem the you know, Cromwell's forces and, you know, that band of round-headed bastards. Um, what happens when pub Pubs close? Um, well, the States tried it uh, in the early 20th century, um, banning booze. Uh, I think uh, I've got some, got some numbers here. And we're back on the inspiration theme, the idea of sharing knowledge and discussing. Um, they had a 15% decrease in patents, which means ideas, people. That means kind of your bright spark stuff, your moments, your flashes of inspiration. They're, they're not happening. As much because people aren't getting together, they aren't chatting through, um, and uh, this depression on invention that follows with closing of pubs. Well, that needed fixing, and they did um, fix it. Pubs don't have the taint of you know a lot of these other buildings. I mean, the Catholic Church is is pretty well represented today, and that got an absolute pasting um, the other week when we were talking about the worst ideas in history. Um, so it's got. Nothing to do with that. They are genuinely here for the public and for the people, and they make society work. I mean, you need a plumber, you need a mechanic, you need an electrician. These people are down the pub um, for you. I mean, to, to verbosely put it, they smooth Clausewitzian friction, but they just make life easier. Um, pubs, they bring people together. Births, deaths, celebrations, commiserations, adversity. They are our refuge they are our sanctuary i mean you looked at your mates and whether things are going badly or whether they're going well and said pub yeah all right off we go and and so yeah perhaps the best indication is where do we all want to be i mean the fact that we have created this virtual pub for us to chat we haven't created a virtual cathedral have we we haven't created a virtual monument or, or anything like that. Uh, we've created a virtual pub because it means so much to us. We share ideas, we debate, we learn, we socialise, and depending on who's talking, we laugh as well. Um, and for those reasons, the greatest building is the pub. Very persuasively put, but Holmes, is this a cop-out? It is, and it's a, it's, but it's a very persuasive one. When Lockie started, <laughs> it speaking, is, but he said the word beer. 
<laughs> when Lockie started speaking, he said it was a collection of buildings and stuff like that. I was thinking, yeah, fuck off. And then he said a pub, and I was like, yeah, I'm on board with this. I'm on board with this straight away. I think, I think the, the interesting thing about the pub is a, it's incredibly historic. It goes right back to almost as far as anyone can remember. I mean, you remember we did that podcast with Pete Brown ages ago, where we looked at looked at this in a lot more detail. But I think also it's the fact that every. And most of the buildings that everyone else has mentioned tonight, no, not everyone has experienced, whereas pretty much everyone has experienced the pub. Lots of, <laughs> lots of, lots of things, you know, pubs used to be courts as well, you know, pubs used to be, but the, the Staffordshire Regiment was set up in a pub in Litchfield. There's all sorts of things that have originated. Football Association founded in a pub? Yeah. Rugby. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many. I mean, like, I was going to wheel out the cliche of, of scribbling an idea on a napkin. You know, how, how often do we talk about that? You know, some brilliant idea comes out of some natter away, yeah. In I mean, fairness, the Great War Group didn't come out of a pub because there weren't any, but they did come out of me and Beth just being pissed. <laughs> I mean, Lockie did say he made a good point about patent, patent applications falling when pubs weren't allowed, which I just wanted to ask him, how many patent applications has he filed over the years as a result of his nights out? No, so this, this I did have to, you know, dig around, and this was actually, oh, who did the research? But there, there was, it was um, a university in the United States that looked up the number of kind of patent applications that go in, and basically if a university gets built in a town, they usually see the, the number of patent applications go up by about 45%. Um, but broadly around prohibition, you know, there was that depression of about 15%. So I think you could say that in terms of ideas generation, the pub is worth about a third of a university, which is quite good considering its primary function is to exchange cash for beer. And also pubs indicate how, you know, times and, and technology changes. So you had coaching ins, which then died out and then were replaced by lots of pubs next to railway stations, which, which succeeded coaching ins and stuff. I, I, I am quite persuaded by this. I think Lockie you wants to go to politics. We've beer. already had cash for honour, and now we're going to do cash for beer, so you might join the pairs a lot. Alina? a political party for me. Right. I'm interested in... what? What's the oldest pub? Uh, the old... The Journey to Jerusalem in Nottingham, if we're talking about English pub. There's one is in Dublin from, like, the year 1100, isn't there, Dorman? Yes, but don't ask me the name of it. Um, yeah, it's somewhere in the city centre. Not, it's not. It's. Um, I'm it doesn't go do stand-up gigs, is what you mean? They suck. Yeah, it doesn't have a comedy club, so I. I've it does look a bit skanky from the outside, to be fair. Yeah, the, the, the the trouble with London pubs and and being very old is the Great Fire of London, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not many very very old pubs in. There was that epic pubs. coaching in that was the like originally out to the West Country, and the road to Reading wasn't there, which was just like japes, apparently. If you do, there's so many stories. I can't remember what it's called, but I put it in that Red Dawn book. Um, but yeah, there was this famous coaching in, and it was like the last stop before you hop down into the West Country, and uh, well, it was legendary. Well, Clive, yeah, Clive just mentioned the, the was it the George in Southwark? There used to be another coaching in on a street parallel to that, and Lockie will probably know this as well. But you know, that's apparently where the um, the Chaucer book. I can't remember the name of it. Canterbury Tales. Canterbury Tales. Canterbury Tales. They, they set off from the one that was the one parallel to the uh, the, the, uh, the George. 
That's right. I mean, there's often a pub on the site of one of these incredibly old pubs, but, um, you know, through wear and tear and it's just not surviving, then then it's not there anymore. And, and you know, the, the reason I like the old Cheshire Cheese particularly is I think it's got a reasonable shout at being the oldest pub in the city, but it hasn't, you know, it's not like it had a refurb in 2011 or something like that. It, it is proper old inside. And yeah. That, that there's, a, there's a pub in the village where I grew up that's in the Doomsday Book. I mean, obviously, it's the same thing. It's not the same building, but it was the pub was there on the same yeah. site. I have to say, the one creeps me out in uh, East London where they think Jack the Ripper probably drank, if you're assuming that he had a drink at some point in his life. That's proper creepy. Because the toilet in the basement. I think so. So, Lockie, I want to know your favourite pub. Oh, mate. That's tough. I want I want something historical here. Come on, persuade me. I really like the Cheshire Cheese, but then I like the Wheelhouse back in Nedging in Suffolk, which is you know my home pub. And Cheshire Cheese is a good shop. Cheshire Cheese is a great pub. I mean, it, it's, it's it's total melting pot as well because you got city workers, you got tourists, you got locals, you got all sorts. Uh, you've got that there, cat with the rough. You seen the cat with the rough? Cat with the rough. I think it throws it. It's a cat with a wears a rough. It's awesome, classy cat. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Marcus, oh, shit. last one. I am going to do one this week as well, and I've actually like written notes and shit. So I'm quite impressed with myself. But Marcus, you go next. Okay, um, I thought I'd go a bit outside of uh, my box. Basically, uh, I think everyone's probably expecting me to go for Apsley House and Wellington Arch, but. Frankly, that's work, and this is the pub, and it's a bit rude to bring uh, work down into the pub. So I could go for the Duke of Wellington's house, and I am now drinking a number one London gin, because with my office is so cool, we've got our own gin brand. Um, but I'm not, and I think everybody knows that I deeply respect the Irish military history. So I'm going to go for Dublin Castle. And I don't mean the pub, which is also a very good pub and does a lot of live music. I genuinely mean the building. So um, we've had one, we've had one castle tonight but i don't think it's got enough recent conflicts to really be a proper castle for military base dublin castle does so it is it is a medieval building we do have a medieval tower and uh it dates back to the 12th century with a a strong tower there however most of the building did burn down and so what we see now is a beautiful early georgian uh complex all linked up one building and, uh, but it sits on the original site where there was a moat diverted through. But what really gets you about Dublin Castle is the amount of history there. Uh, it was the seat of power for both the Irish court and the British government in Ireland for an incredibly long period of time. Um, the court of the castle chamber was there. And during so many of these risings, uh, it was the centre. So United Irishmen during the 1796 rising were incarcerated in there before they were deported. During certain of the, the 1920 Bloody Sunday uprising, uh, there was people actually incarcerated in there and then probably beat, brutally beaten to death by um, reprisal killings from British soldiers. You've actually got a sensational, it's described as, homosexual scandal using Irish politicians uh, in the 1800s. You've also got the Irish Crown Jewels, that's inverted Crown Jewels, um, as I think they have an official title. Uh, they were actually stolen from the castle in 1907. It goes all the way up to recent uh, history of the bloody, uh, of the Easter Rising in 1916, where the 
Irish citizen army uh, actually managed to force away into the outer barracks and a gunfight ensued into the forecourt and the outer uh, barracks area. In more, more, or more recent eras, um, the State Departments have been used by swearing in of recent Irish presidents being sworn in there. And I'm yeah, not going to attempt any Irish because it's a beautiful language and I'm going to butcher it. Yeah, I'm just going to butcher it. So visiting and staying there, Queen Victoria several times, Charles Dickens, Countess Malkovich, Prince K, Charles de Gaulle, Nelson Mandela, Queen Elizabeth II and Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, okay, I'm sliding in there, but the Duke of Wellington worked there for about three years uh, when he was there, so my boy still gets represented. Um, basically, it's a both a modern political centre, it's a tourist attraction, and it's key to the state of Ireland, as opposed to the free state. And- Elena? Um, I got distracted by the um, technical error. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Marcus. Does that mean you don't have any questions? I don't have any questions because I got incredibly distracted like a cat. And a mouse. I, I think, A, my, my, my default position is if it was that good, then Dorman would have raised it, first of all. So I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if it was a question of someone nicking Dorman's idea or not. And then I, I guess, unlike most of the, the rest of the buildings that have been mentioned tonight, is that most of us have seen them and, have, and know what they look like in their mind, whereas I, I don't have any recollection. Now, that might be down to my own ignorance entirely. But, um, yeah, it's slightly tricky. In fairness, it is, like, to actually see it, you do have to go off the main street and go through a, you know, gate and then turn right and then go up a hill. So it's not on display as... Um, I suppose other monuments are in Dublin. You can very easily walk straight past it and not realise you've done it. That probably explains that. But I mean, I've never been to Ireland either, so that doesn't really help me. But I'm not, you know, yeah. in the, I know what the Taj Mahal looks like and I know what the Chrysler building looks like. So I've seen them over the years, seen photos of them over the years. But Well, I can't help you there, though. Sorry, Marcus, I did my best. <laughs> Any more, Holmes? No, nothing from me. Okay. So, finally, um, I'd, like I said, I considered Clouds Hill. Um, I also considered the Pantheon because I love sitting by that in Rome, um, even though it has got a hole in the roof, so you might argue that it's not the most effective building. Uh, but there it is sat, adapting to Rome, both, uh, evolving around it and changing around it for 2,000 years, and it's just minded its own business and stayed there, and it's pretty stunning. But... In the end, I decided to go for, because going completely against Holmes's obsession with what a building looks like, I'm going to go for a building that is far more symbolic than that, because I don't think we even necessarily know exactly what it looks like. And at no point did I say this building still had to exist either. So I'm going to go for the Library of Alexandria. I'm going to do ancient shit and butcher all of these Greek names. Um, so it was... Founded sort of in the 50 years after Alexander by all of those Ptolemy people that followed him um, and ballsed it up, the empire, I think. I'm, I'm a bit hazy on this. But anyway, this library is more what we lost when it burnt down or got trashed or everything got ruined. That I think is the key point. You're talking about a building that had up to, at its height, possibly half a million 
ancient publications in it on scrolls that is so history uh, rivals to herodotus the lost works of Aeschylus, unknown rivals to both perhaps could have been housed there with untold numbers of scrolls on ancient science maths religion literature had it survived it could change our entire understanding of our own history and i'm just going to tell you some of the stuff that has been lost that you could you could have hoped to would find in apart from the porn i'm looking at john's comment in the chat some of the stuff you could have expected to find and that's lost works by julius caesar augustus memoirs of agrippina the younger works on alexander uh, more stuff by uh, homer apollonius cato the elder's history of rome in seven volumes archimedes cicero's tragedies and then you've got all of the stuff like the people that we just don't know anything about what they wrote. Almost all the writings of Hippo- Hippocus, the father of astronomy. A legend says that um, Aesiculus, Sophocles and Euripides, uh, they asked the Athenians if they could buy from them and they said no. And so the Alexandrians said, well, can we borrow it to copy them? And then they never gave them back. So feasibly, the complete works of those famous people as well. And then what don't we know about what was in the building? So ships arriving in Alexandria, so the legend says, had to be searched. And then any books that were found on these boats, bearing in mind this is a bustling port, had to be copied because their ambition was to have a copy of every book in the world. So you could be like stuff we have lost. Uh, Posidonius, scientific output apparently on a level with Aristoteles, nothing survives. Uh, Chrysippus was apparently more highly regarded than both of them, nothing survives. The founder of scientific medicine, Herophilus, nothing. Engineer Cestibus, all lost. Knowledge of lost Hellenistic warships, massive, uh, the massive, massive output of one man alone, which is Democritus of Abdera, uh, who wrote on. He's apparently, even modern scientists will tell you that he uh, is the greatest scientist that ever lived. Or he may just be a pompous windbag because he apparently had works on uh, cosmology, planets, human nature, the soul, uh, movements of atoms fire and how it works acoustic phenomena seeds plants and fruits geometry light agriculture medicine history ethics and law um so in short this was a building of wonder and no matter what it looked like and we know it was grand had it survived it could possibly have changed civilization so i'm nominating the lost library of alexandria as the greatest building ever in history holmes do we have any indications of what it looked like? Uh, I will. I will show you an artist's impression. We do. So it was part of a complex, and I didn't argue the complex, which included a massive university as well. But this is so. It was all housed on scrolls, and one publication uh, might have extended to several scrolls. And they all they didn't progress past papyrus, and we think that's because of where it was, um, because they were so invested in the papyrus trade, being at the mouth of the Nile. Uh, so this is how they were stored in racks like this um, and there is, it's really hazy how many they had at any given time the smallest number they might have had is 40,000 but they're saying that even that would have been a phenomenal amount in storage and things like that and then you've also got the fact that this library and this complex drew to it the finest minds ever like Archimedes apparently invented that water pump here uh, people 
first divided poetry into lines so you could read it better here. I just, the, the depth of thought and knowledge and scholarship that occurred as a result of this library uh, is phenomenal. And it sort of, it declined a bit as the Romans came around and then there's sort of, there's various things that happened to trash it. Um, but I will just show you as well, because there was a picture of the complex because I know Holmes is preoccupied. Uh, on what it looked like. I did Wikipedia this. There's some art. Yeah, fair enough. I, it's it's kind of true. I've not been to a library. There's a library in Collier's Wood. I've not been to that for many years. I went there when my son was little. And then when we, when we got to the um, children's reading area, the bit with the small tables and the small chairs, we noticed there was a shit in the middle of the table. And um, I went to the librarian and I said, sorry, there's some, someone's there's a poo on the middle of the table in the children's area. And he says, why did you do it there? So I just like, ever since then, I've been slightly wary about going to libraries. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, was this Collier's Wood? It was Collier's Wood, yeah. No. It's been done up since then. I imagine yeah. there are no ships on the table in the children's area now. Well, I did find one on the dance floor once at the nightclub. And I sent my Mancunian bartender to clean it up. And he said, why have I got to do it? And I said, well, because you lot do this in your living rooms up there. <laughs> to which he said, I was mankiest. So, and you said, no, you're the mankiest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone crapped on the dance floor. It was classy. Alina? That happened at, that happened at Goldsmith Student Union one time as well. And there was a Facebook group set up for a while called Shit at Smith's Who'd Done It. Um, <laughs> There you go. That's it. That's, that's, that's the story. Anyone else got any inappropriate dump stories? No? Alina, any questions? I thought you were going to ask me there, Alina, if you've got any dump stories. No, I don't. I've got, I've got, I've got more, but... I... <laughs> to be honest, I love this library. I think it is one of the most magnificent buildings ever created, but I think uh, Holmes is going to um, bully me into another option so alex i would like you to believe that i would have highly voted for this one i just feel like the amount of science and maths and things that people had discovered and then got lost and how many years it took us to rediscover them are phenomenal and it could have changed just the survival of that one building could have changed the whole course of human history and i don't think anyone else's buildings can say that yeah but a lot of what I do is um, heritage building and fire maintenance. And I just think they just did a really shit job. So. Either that, or I know Emma would want us to big up the fact <laughs> that it was Julius Bastard Caesar who potentially burnt it to the ground as well. Should have had a sprinkler system, I think. <laughs> a truly great building wouldn't have caught fire. <laughs> like the Tower of London, which didn't burn in the fire. Just, mm. just saying. Or Stonehenge, which is made of stone. Or a exactly. Stonehenge, which is made of new. Setting up a joke, Lockie. <laughs> right, let's go oh, around the room together, while the judges uh, have a discourse and about whether New York is shit and who should win this debate. I think this is going to be, and while they decide also who's bullshitting as well, uh, then we will go around the room and see who everyone would have gone for. We've not heard from Kate in what feels like five hours now. Kate, which one would you go for if you can't have your magnificent cathedral that just got shat on right at the beginning? <laughs> so um, 
I would pick the Tower of London. It was a hard choice to choose one, I think. There were so many. Um, but, yeah, I would choose the Tower of London, definitely. I'm surprised Taj Mahal didn't come up, but then we're having a whole week of sappiness. Well, it won't be because it's us. Potential I, sappiness next week. I, <laughs> I deliberately avoided um, kind of what I thought were the most obvious ones, like Taj Mahal and the pyramids and stuff, because I assumed that somebody would do them. Um, and I kind of, in light of what everybody else chose, I would I would have done something different had I, I known other people's choices. Sure. What would you have gone for? I think possibly, I'm not sure, but I think possibly um, I would have picked the Alhambra Palace or Bran Castle. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, the Alhambra of, is amazing. It is stunning. And I was kind of pushed into into my choice a little bit because I didn't know what to do. So um, I just did what other people told me to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Alhambra is absolutely stunning if you haven't seen it. It is stunning. I mean, I literally live a couple of hours away from the Alhambra and it's incredible. When you drive when you drive up to Granada, when you drive up to where it is, you you can't see it until you get to it and yet it's huge and you can see from it you can see right across like right down to the coast and across to africa it's, it's just incredible but you can't see it until you get there it's amazing yeah and it is i think if you wanted to pick one monument to islamic influence in spain it is a pretty stunning one but i reckon i was more excited possibly because i went to it first and it was the first one i saw by the mosquito in cordoba with all those arches I haven't been there, so I couldn't possibly say. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been to the Alhambra, albeit years ago, and it was stunning. It was the last Moorish stronghold, wasn't it? So mm. it was kind of the, the last one they had. Yeah, but you can, I highly recommend a road trip around Andalusia looking at all of the places like that because it was amazing. And Having lived here for what, 14 years nearly now, I haven't been anywhere i i just haven't got around to doing it people people think i'm so lucky to live in spain because it's like being on holiday and it's not i work harder here than i ever did in england (laughs) (laughs) so i will make (laughs) i will make the effort and go see these places when if covid cuts off i'm doing a road trip from barcelona down to malaga next year so hook up with us at some point along the way towards the southern end yeah, cool. Well, I'm, I'm in Berlin and a half from Malaga, so yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the plan is just to fly home just from Malaga. Just the fuck off. that much time there. Uh, Marcus? Yeah, I was just wondering that if actually Gibraltar, like the rock itself, could be classed as a single building if we're not allowed compounds. In which case, <laughs> the rock of Gibraltar could be an amazing building. But that's another time. Uh, love Gibraltar. Um, yeah, Charlie put it in the chat. Um, she's A, blackmailed me. I have to choose White Ladies Priory. And also, that it's like, I know our KV107 one-star review, whatever his name was, doesn't like us talking about sex. But, you know, Charlie getting his end away with a nun under a palace in a secret tunnel may or may not be there is um, classic down the pub kind of stuff. And um, without what mentioning the name to too strongly. It's square, in your opinion of it. Yeah, it's fucking awesome. Brilliant. And um, I won't mention the name, but it's managed by my employer. So it's ace because they look after so much heritage and uh, good stuff in England. I didn't mention their name. Even if they completely, the bastards did not beam you onto Stonehenge, did they? (laughs) No, but the person they did is a good friend of mine who has a very big head right now and says he's very humble by sharing it all the time. 
In fairness, no, he's a very nice guy. the time we talked about you sitting in your pants playing Assassin's Creed on furlough, I feel there may be some objection if you would suddenly been being... Yeah, I've probably made a bigger contribution towards Assassin's Creed this year. <laughs> Excellent. Charlie, who would you have gone for? I, it's It's been difficult this week because I love some of the concepts that we've had. Like, I, I can't argue with the pub being just the greatest concept of a building ever, or indeed your house and Alina's house. But for me, it's got to be the Tower of London because it is such a perfect little capsule of British history. It's it's incredible. And yeah, there's there's so much there. And I really want to go and look at the fancy crown jewels again. Or just look at anything again that isn't in your house. Shiny things. I don't have things that shiny here. Um, I do, but they're generally cubic deconia. So... <laughs> It's not really as exciting. And I bought them for myself, so uh, that's not exciting either. I think if I had to pick one that wasn't mine, I would pick Clive. I would pick the Chrysler building because it is quite special. Clive, who would you pick? Well, it's obviously, there's only one of the buildings that was spoken about today that I haven't seen that now I really, really want to go to, and that was the Pyramid in Memphis. <laughs> 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 Outstanding. It was that promise of beef jerky and an indoor swamp, wasn't it? Absolutely. I could I would just love to see the most English man I know in that pyramid. In, in the most American place we can think of. Yeah. Have we completely ruled out Denver Airport to go back to an earlier part? Only on account of the fucking hideous blue horse. Yeah. I really want to see Denver Airport, by the way. <laughs> Best promise me a one-way ticket. I've been to Denver Airport, but only to change planes. So I can't remember anything special about it. I, I remember that because my son used to go there for fencing tournaments. And, uh, I, I mean, I remember the horse, but... Uh, it was an interesting story. Easy I love horse. that Charlie is now sporting a tiara. Yeah, I put it on for a joke, but I'm never taking it off now. Brilliant. I love it. I want to see it tomorrow morning. Uh, oh, yeah. I asked James. Um, I think I'm actually going to go for La Sagrada Familia uh, because I felt it was partially put down. And in many ways, it is a great building, not just for religion, but for architecture. And the amount of culture and history it has just for Spain alone. Uh, although honorary mention, Dorman with Newgrange. What I love is that one. about an hour ago, Dorman changed his picture from Newgrange to the Teletubby house and no one's noticed. <laughs> <laughs> they essentially I see. look exactly the same. That's the Tubby Superdome, I'll have you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that? Oh, Beth. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's so many good choices. I mean, I think I'm almost tempted with the telly to be super drone, but, uh, um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Tower of London, but I did like the concept of the pub as well. No. Yeah, easy, please, John. This, uh, topic this week was a lot more freeform. Uh, I mean, we got everything from pubs to ancient buildings to your house. Uh, <laughs> but I think if I if I went with it with one other than mine, it it have to be the Library of Alexandria. And you think about the what that setback did for learning. 
Um, you know, we've had other intellectual setbacks before, but in one fell swoop connected to one building, that was probably the most significant. And you were my new favourite. Lockie? Well, I kind of agree with John. I mean, it's like eggs in basket stuff, isn't it? Just having a building that important. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's some that I love. Hadja Sophia is stunning. Having been there and seen it, it really, really is special. Um, I think I'd probably, I mean, the Vatican's something else. Um, and St. Peter's is actually amazing. Um I think it might have to be, but but then I then I appreciate like Dorman's tomb, not actually Dorman's tomb, you know the tomb that Dorman mentioned. Um, he will when the time comes. He will. Was this our first death threat on Dharma? That would that would be <laughs> that would be the, the the Vatican of its day, and I appreciate that as well. So um, I'm undecided, probably leaning towards the Vatican. Yeah, I think even if you're not a Catholic, you walk in there and you're like, damn, Catholic Church won, everybody else nil. Dorman, have I asked you? No, not yet. Go on then. Uh, um, see, I, <laughs> it's, it's interesting this week because it's, it's happened again where we've had quite a um, Western-focused sort of range um, to pick from. Because, I mean, you can make a case for things like the Great Wall of China or anything from Asia, actually. <laughs> hang on, hang on. The, great, the Great Wall of China's not got a roof. Surely that's a minimum criteria for well, a building. the towers have roofs. <laughs> and, you know, it's... Um, well, <laughs> in fairness, we don't know the state of Alina's house. That might ha- not have a roof either. In fact... <laughs> yeah. <it's- laughs> so, Does the Great Wall of China have a pub? <laughs> possibly. We don't know. And obviously pubs are great because they often have stages that I can stand on and tell jokes on. So the concept of the pub is top tier as well. But I think it's going to have to be the Vatican. Just A, Catholic guilt and B, built by Pope Julius, who's the best pope ever. So it's got to be the Vatican. Has everyone had a go? Chris? Uh, um, I'm, I'm really torn because although I agree with um, Alex and Beth's, and I'm torn towards Lucy because I grew up in the Kentish Weald. I'm going to have to go with um, Lockie because my idea of a romantic hotspot and an impenetrable fortress is indeed the same place in the form of the pub. So it's, it's got to be the pub. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, judges. Has everyone been before I do this? Cool. Yeah, I went on a bit of a journey. Actually, I thought actually something like Alex, you mentioned that you mentioned the Pantheon in Rome or Pantheon, however I'm pronouncing it. Um, and I would have been fully on board for that. And I, I thought someone might have mentioned the Acropolis or something like that, which would have been a. I just, for me, the fact that you can sit at a restaurant outside the Pantheon and people have sat there looking at that for 2,000 years, but it's gone from being a pagan temple to a religious building to a tourist building to a tomb for Raphael and stuff, and it's just sat there and survived it all. It's something pretty fucking special. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. You can have, like, five pints and then wander in and then come out and have five five more pints straight away, which is quite a good sell for a historic... It's also the amazing uh, handmade paper shop next door for nerds and Blue Ice is just around the corner with 40-odd flavours of ice cream, including Viagra. So I thought something would like that be mentioned. And then initially I went on a bit of a journey from from Dormans. I was quite, I'm quite on board with that. And then Clive's... And then the Tower of London, I was quite on board with that. And then Clive, I was well with Clive's. Clive's was winning in my mind at that point. But then Lockie did his stuff, and I think I had to go with Lockie. 
Okay, are you saying that you and Alina didn't agree? I, I think we agreed, but I think our journey's different. But <laughs> Alina can explain her journey. Go on, Alina. Oh, my God. Um, for me, there, obviously, I'm sorry, sorry, Kate. I'm really sorry. It's, I was so disappointed in that first one. Um, it's and again, I'm totally over it. It's fine. <laughs> I loved, again, I love Dormans because it is, it is old shit, as Alex calls it. Beth, you stole my heart. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, Lucy's, again, I love that kind of homely idea of that kind of stuff. And then, obviously, the Tower of London kicked in. There were a couple of, you know, Nazis, some executions, lots of death. That's always a winner. And then, Alex, you kicked me in the nuts with Alexandria. And then we had to settle on Lockie because actually it was a really <laughs> good argument. Did Alina just miss both the Irish ones? I'm starting to feel like I'm yeah. sitting in Dorman's shoes here. Um, and the Hagia Sophia. The only thing I'll say, though, is you haven't picked a building. We picked lots of buildings. The pub. I feel like this has been three hours of my life wasted because we haven't actually agreed on the best building, whatever. We've just all agreed that we like the pub whilst sitting in a virtual pub. I'd say the best building You need to frame the question better then. No, I said said the greatest building and you've said all You always say it's open to interpretation. Okay, but I'm telling you now. We can only judge on what we're told to. You could have kicked him out halfway through. Yeah, that's a cop out, man. This seriously, we've sat around for three hours to decide we like pubs. This is love story. I choose love story by Taylor Swift. Uh, to be fair, this is Lockie's first win, though, isn't it? I think it's so, Lockie's yeah, first. Yeah, right. There may be a massive cop out and a load of shit, but congratulations, Lockie. He's actually the bullshitter. Yeah. <laughs> no, who, oh yeah, judges. Who do you think was bullshitting you? Go on, Holmes. Did we have one? I, I'm struggling. Well, I'm struggling with this. I would go for Charlotte if I had to, but I'm not confident. Yeah, me too. I, Charlie, you. I believe it. Wave your hand if you're the bullshitter. Oh, oh yes. Charlie. Damn it. Marcus is devastated. That, I, I didn't even, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, you I'm were just ve- devastated that Charlie wasn't nobbing a nun. Yeah, I mean, I've got to explain some emails tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Just in my defence, all of all of the buildings I mentioned are real. All the people I mentioned were real. What was invented were the tunnels linking the priest holes. So no, they did all have to sit in priest holes, being uncomfortable. They couldn't get together. They couldn't hang out, and they couldn't boff anybody under white ladies' prime. Well, that's, that's it was very convincing. It that's wasn't the right amount of truth in the uh, story, though. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as reading the plot to a computer game and hoping no one had played. <laughs> 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 it's going to go proper... down in Mary Rose history. As, I mean, like... I... Uh, I did proper research. Look, I mean, books and everything. <laughs> to be honest, I did proper Maybe research on time... my, but any other gave up, I think. <laughs> Maybe next we, we time, Charles, maybe next time, swap Charles a second for an Italian plumber. <laughs> <laughs> and his brother, yeah, okay. Yeah. Outstanding, guys! Thank you so much. Next week we'll be debating history's greatest love story. Um, yeah, which, bleh, but I'm sure Alina will love all of the stories, and that we'll find a way to make it not gross and icky for the rest of us. So, thank you very much, and we'll see you there. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 